opened fire on a crowd of 100 black students, killing two and injuring 12 others. Authorities claimed they were being sniped at, but an FBI investigation did not find any evidence of sniper fire. Though these events were prefigured by Willie Grimes' killing and the rampant mistreatment of his fellow students, the earlier case did not attract wide attention or lead to any changes in how authorities responded to protests and rebellions at colleges and universities. President Nixon established the President's Commission on Campus Unrest, known as the Scranton Commission, to investigate the Kent State and Jackson State shootings. In its final report, on September 1970, the commission determined that the shootings were not justified in either case. There was no mention of the Greensboro violence in the 500-page document. The investigation of violence at Greensboro had been left to a local advisory committee to the United States Commission on Civil Rights. After the shooting, as one Dudley High School student pointed out to the North Carolina Advisory Committee in the fall of 1969, the violence, including the death of Willie Grimes, was entirely avoidable. The students gave the school administration several opportunities to come to a compromise on their demands, but none of the authorities rose to advocate for the young activists. At one point, the Greensboro School Board believed it could end the rebellion by reassigning to Dudley those black football players attending predominantly white high schools, a practice intended to improve the white school's teams. The students were left to create situations that would force the officials to take notice, the committee said in its official report. Principal Brown and other school officials had no interest in discussion, no desire to reach a resolution with the students. The activists at A&T State were the Dudley students' primary defenders. For their part, city and school officials had dismissed the student movement, arguing that it was led by a group of not-too-bright black students who were being led astray by outsiders and radicals. This view ignored the underlying problems that motivated the protesters in the first place, the advisory committee found. Outsiders cannot create problems, although they may exploit them, the committee observed. It was easier for authorities to scapegoat students for operating in a panther-like fashion than to acknowledge they might have a real point to make. City and state officials in Harrisburg had likewise clung to the idea that outside influences were responsible for the rebellion in their city's schools. Pennsylvania Governor Raymond Schaefer had announced at a press conference in the middle of the violence in his state that while there was no evidence that militant groups or federal anti-poverty officials were leading the rebellion, we are looking into that possibility. The state school superintendent and Mayor Straub also suggested that outside agitators were responsible for the unrest. Even if this were true, one black coalition of Harrisburg member did not see why it should matter. Outside agitators are the society. Students were responding to pervasive racial discrimination. The students have led the way, and we should bury, once and for all, the outside agitators' claim. In Greensboro, the grievances motivating the uprising were simple and clear, the advisory committee concluded. The main issue was the unequal treatment of citizens of Greensboro because of their race. 
discrimination in housing, employment, education, and the delivery of services coupled with institutional racism and the unresponsiveness of the official system. The schools were but one pillar holding up a larger structure of racial oppression. The violence in Greensboro ended when all A&T State University and Dudley High School students were dismissed for the remainder of the school year. That summer, the high school and college students, as well as the broader community, kept protesting, carrying forward Barnes's original campaign platform. In response, Dudley administrators rescinded the strict dress code previously enforced at the school— the school board agreed to invest in new textbooks and improve facilities at Dudley and other underserved campuses in the district. Black history courses were eventually offered as part of Dudley's curriculum. That's what we were fighting for, Barnes reflected later. If that revolt hadn't happened, we wouldn't have had the political progress that was made. It took violent protest— including actions that spilled beyond schools themselves to force Harrisburg, Burlington, Greensboro, and other school systems in America to respond to the basic needs of black students. In Harrisburg and Greensboro, though one is a northern city and the other southern, and famous as a civil rights battlefield, events played out in a similar fashion, and any progress came at a similarly devastating cost. Young men had been killed— Dozens more students were expelled, and many were left with criminal records. Rather than simply engaging with students putting forward a set of deeply felt and serious-minded demands, administrators often turned to disregard and repression as their chosen tactics. And when this response led to black political violence, the solution, even among black authorities themselves— always involved state-sanctioned counterinsurgency in defense of the existing racial order. Chapter 7 The Commissions The cycle of police violence and black rebellion appeared in many, if not most, American cities in the late 1960s and early 1970s, almost regardless of size, region, or the particular history of a given city. And just as the cycle played out in similar ways, wherever police violence and desperate conditions prevailed, the aftermaths of these events often followed a template. As in Greensboro, after the unrest and violence in the spring of 1969, a federal civil rights commission, or a state or local-level human relations commission, would be constituted to investigate, produce a report, and recommend a path forward. Yet even as these commissions succeeded in doing the very thing local officials refused to do, talk about root causes, they can by and large be judged failures. They did not stop the violence themselves, and many of the cities they tried to save went into steep decline despite their efforts. To understand why, the place to start is with the well-meaning attempts to render black rebellion unnecessary. The House of Representatives created the first Human Relations and Civil Rights Commission in 1917 when it sent a special committee to investigate police misconduct during the white riot in East St. Louis that left hundreds of black people dead. Select committees or commissions were a frequent response to incidents of mass white vigilantism and racial warfare up to and during the Second World War, 
and to black rebellions beginning with Watts in 1965. The most prominent and influential riot commission was the National Advisory Commission on Civil Disorders, established by a Lyndon Johnson executive order in July 1967 during the summer of rebellions in Newark, Cairo, Detroit, and 70 other cities. The Kerner Commission had been named after its chairman, Illinois Governor Otto Kerner, and the task force was given seven months to determine the origins of the violence and to recommend measures to contain future disturbances. When the Kerner Commission released its 426-page report in February 1968, 740,000 copies sold within a few weeks. In total, two million Americans would purchase the paperback version of the report. The public wanted to know why rioting had occurred and how it could be stopped. For its time, the Kerner Report was a mostly progressive document, highlighting the role of white racism in perpetuating inequality and segregation. The commission called for the full integration of black citizens into the mainstream of American life. Although the report placed the onus on black Americans themselves to conform to mainstream, red-white, cultural values and practices, the Kerner Commission argued that this goal could only be achieved by direct massive federal investment into disadvantaged communities. That effort would need to go well beyond existing war on poverty programs in order to provide greater access to employment, education and housing the same issues that would later be identified by the North Carolina Advisory Committee after Greensboro. But at the time, Johnson viewed these recommendations as unreasonable politically, fearing their radical implications, and refused to publicly comment on the commission's findings. Still, the commission had served an important purpose for the president, who had announced its formation in his televised address from the Oval Office four days into the Detroit Rebellion. Establishing the task force allowed Johnson to point to a concrete step he had taken to reassure the American people that order would eventually be restored across the nation. Subsequent state or local-level investigations into the causes of and solutions to racial unrest followed the pattern set by the Kerner Commission. They identified the socioeconomic origins of rebellion and outlined a plan of action by which cities could improve race relations and create more equitable conditions. But their recommendations were seldom implemented, and ultimately they backed the police. In Minnesota, after St. Paul police tear-gassed some 500 young black people in their teens and early 20s at a soul music dance over Labor Day weekend in 1968, a cycle of rebellion began that involved window smashing, arson, and shooting. The local urban coalition and human rights department commissioned studies to determine the causes of the uprising, and they interviewed hundreds of witnesses and residents throughout the fall, releasing their reports in February 1969. The tensions and frustrations of the St. Paul Negro community have been created by so many factors and been bottled up so long that disorder seemed inevitable, Human Rights Department Director Louis H. Irvin wrote. Something had to give. Again, the investigators identified unequal access to decent housing, education, and employment opportunities as the fundamental causes of the violence, while praising the exemplary conduct and discipline on the part of the police, who injured some 30 residents over the course of the two-day rebellion. 
the police violence was largely attributed to some ineptitude, even misconduct, on the part of a few bad apple cops, and St. Paul authorities did little to remedy socioeconomic disparities moving forward. In Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, the State Human Relations Commission held two sets of hearings. Though the city was spared the kind of shattering violence that erupted in nearby Pittsburgh and in Baltimore during the Martin Luther King rebellions in 1968, on April 8th, the day before King's burial, marauding bands of youths in Harrisburg set fire to a Quaker Oats Company warehouse and the building of a furniture company. But there was not a major outbreak beyond these incidents— Many feared it had all the ingredients for large-scale disorder. A week after King's burial services, the Harrisburg Human Relations Council identified the city as a likely target for riots due to the inequality and discrimination suffered by its black residents, who numbered about 23,000 of the city's total population of 68,000. The Pennsylvania Human Relations Commission came to investigate and agreed that the city contained the active potentiality for racial violence. In their investigatory report of May 1968, members of the state commission echoed the Kerner Commission in warning that interracial tensions cannot be erased without full partnership inclusion in the planning and decision-making process of authority. The report encouraged the city to bring the Negroes of Harrisburg into meaningful inclusion in the programs that will affect their families' lives and futures. Specifically, this meant expanding the federal government's Section 8 vouchers via the U.S. Department of Housing and Development to increase the housing stock accessible to black residents, stricter enforcement of the housing code to force slumlords to keep their rentals up to basic standards, the expansion of job training programs and vocational schools to open a pathway for residents into skilled trades, and the immediate development that summer of swimming pools, parks, and playgrounds in the core city to ensure public services were equitably rendered. These measures would not completely overturn the status quo in favor of black equality, the report made clear, but could still help improve conditions in the short term. About a year later, the anticipated racial violence arrived in the schools and on the streets, and the State Human Relations Commission returned, this time conducting a far more comprehensive investigation and proposing a more ambitious set of reforms. In Cairo, Illinois, it took 200 nights of shooting over a period of three years before a task force arrived and determined the city was at war with itself. In March 1972, the United States Commission on Civil Rights held a three-day public hearing in Cairo, marking the first time racial oppression and white vigilantism in the city were recognized by a government authority at any level. Commissioner Frankie Freeman, the first black woman to be appointed to the position, understood the stakes. We have come to Cairo for specific reasons, she explained in her opening remarks. The Commission has received allegations that extensive and overt racial discrimination exists here. Freeman knew the hearings and the city's problems were about more than Cairo. In turning our attention to the racial situation in Cairo, we will also learn a great deal about similar situations in other communities throughout the country, she said, adding that this information will be enlightening and of benefit to Americans everywhere.
Black Cairoites were skeptical of the Commission's power to change their daily lives, but it was the best hope they had had since the war began on the last day of March in 1969, with local whites shooting into their community from the levee. Even as liberal-leaning civil rights commissions at the federal level and liberal-leaning human relations commissions at the state and local levels highlighted the socioeconomic roots of rebellion and promoted integration as the primary solution, they tended to pathologize black residents. And this was central to the ultimate failure of the commissions. A study conducted by the school board in Alexandria, Virginia, in 1970, attributed instances of black bravado to the criminal disruption of local schools by black students. The board cast the discipline problem, much like the Kerner Report had, as ultimately the creature of a negligent white society. While it called for the reformation of existing institutional structures of control and exclusion, the study also pointed to an unconscious mass paranoia among black people that led them to regard all disciplinary actions as racially motivated. Even as the school board acknowledged the fact of white racism, it concluded that black Americans' perception of that racism was delusional. The solution lay just as much in changing black Americans' beliefs in the pervasiveness of discrimination as it did in changing public policy. The idea that the problem of racism is partially or largely a matter of black people's mistaken perception appears in the Supreme Court's infamous decision in Plessy v. Ferguson in 1896, which established the separate but equal clause that enforced Jim Crow segregation. The badge of inferiority that resulted from the enforced separation of the two races was an assumption of black people's own making, according to the Supreme Court's majority— if this be so, the court ruled, it is not by reason of anything found in the act, but solely because the colored race chooses to put that construction upon it. The problem was not racial exploitation and inequality stemming from slavery, white supremacist violence, and the failures of Reconstruction, but undue sensitivity on the part of the former slaves and their descendants. The Plessy decision reduced the race problem to mere interpersonal prejudice, to how black and white people felt about and interacted with one another. By the 1960s and 1970s, policymakers and social scientists preferred to use the supposedly neutral term alienation to describe the psychological impact of racism on black Americans— as future Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan famously put it in his influential 1965 report, alienation was shorthand for the equally numerous ways in which large numbers of Negro youth appear to be withdrawing from American society. By talking about urban problems, including violence, in terms of alienation— Moynihan, civil rights commissions, and prominent liberal officials cast racial inequality as a consequence of behavior. This view limited their vision for a more egalitarian America. As many white people did at the time, they had turned to interpersonal and psychological understandings of the causes of black poverty and violence. The concept of alienation 
united the progressive idea that society treated black people unfairly with the regressive notion that black people suffered from a pathology that left them unwilling, as the liberal side of the debate argued, or unfit, as many conservatives suggested, to participate in society. It was a position that undermined the stated goals of the commissions in the first place. Alienation provided a useful framework for the Pennsylvania Human Relations Commission in its attempts to understand the April 1968 rebellion in Harrisburg. Long-standing patterns of exclusion of the black resident from participation in the process of local government have resulted in a profound sense of alienation by the black community, the commission reported. It described alienation as the result of abrasive contact with agencies or individuals representing government authority that led to the intensification of real or imagined grievances against the historically insensitive power structure. Trying to make sense of the riot, the commission elaborated, grievances suffered by Negroes take on a deep personal significance, far overbalancing the immediate consequences of the grievance. The alienation of black residents led them to view such everyday things as the delay of trash removal in their neighborhood, not as an instance of poor public service, but as an example of racial discrimination. Although the commission clearly understood that the violence was the product of systemic exclusion and discrimination over time, its assertion that at least some black grievances were imagined or that the response to a perceived injustice far overbalanced the immediate consequence implied that, to a certain extent, its members believed that racism was a black problem. Seeing the world as fundamentally racist prompted them to overreact, to rebel in certain situations. The commission did address the role of police in provoking the rebellion, but only obliquely, as the on-the-street representatives of local authority, and therefore the focal point for overt expressions of disrespect for a seemingly insensitive authority by a frustrated minority, the Harrisburg police bore the brunt of the violent manifestations of black residents' perceived alienation. The state-level commission borrowed from the recommendations the Kerner Commission had made two months prior to address the increased misunderstanding and antipathies toward the police— it encouraged the Harrisburg Police Department to establish a complaint review process to recruit non-white officers, to offer community relations and sensitivity training for its rank and file, and to develop police-citizen rapport and understanding. These recommendations were in line with the prevailing community-oriented reforms police departments across the United States had begun to implement in the late 1960s, especially the turn toward diversifying the ranks. Following the Pennsylvania Commission's recommendations, in the summer of 1968, the city made good on its earlier promise to expand recreational facilities, building eight new playgrounds and two swimming pools, and the police department opened two new neighborhood police community relations centers. Staffed by four officers total, two of them black, the centers were responsible for establishing rapport with neighborhood citizens, responding to complaints from residents, and developing programming for junior high and high school students. The initiative was good for public relations, but in practice it was treated like the bastard child of the Harrisburg Police Department.
The unit was not assigned police cruisers or a clerical staff, leaving the officers to handle all bureaucratic duties themselves. The citizens' complaint program was shunned by the rest of the force and given little support from the city. The Harrisburg Police Department's refusal to commit to improving relations with the community was perhaps best exemplified by the sensitivity training it introduced for its officers, which did more to instill a warrior mentality than anything else. During the sensitivity course, intended to promote understanding of the black community as a means of reducing instances of police brutality, Officers were shown a 35-minute film, Revolution Underway, produced by the National Education Program, an ultra-right-wing group based in Searcy, Arkansas. Essentially anti-communist propaganda, it warned of a revolutionary force that aimed to destroy American cities and overthrow the government. It argued that the Kerner Commission, which found that the rebellions were not part of a larger conspiracy, had suppressed evidence about the role of revolutionary black power in stoking unrest. Featuring footage of traitors such as Malcolm X, Robert F. William, H. Rapp Brown, and Stokely Carmichael, the film warned darkly of outside agitators who were primarily responsible for the assault on American institutions from within. The 1968 film was shown to law enforcement officers across the country into the 1970s. Revolution Underway depicted local police as the soldiers of the war on crime as the most important line of defense against the violent black and brown enemy. Offering few specifics about how to quell rioting beyond the use of paramilitary tactics, Revolution Underway which was also screened at a meeting of the Save Our Schools organization in Harrisburg and at the Market Square Presbyterian Church, heightened the stakes of urban unrest and the role of police in suppressing it. A black officer called the film distasteful and destructive in its stereotypical depictions. Harrisburg Mayor Albert Straub, acting police chief Martin Watts, and other city officials endorsed revolution underway as a necessary element of police sensitivity training. The conflict over revolution underway illuminated the growing chasm between conservative and liberal officials and between law enforcement and social services representatives. Both sides understood black political violence as rooted in pathology and at best downplayed underlying socioeconomic causes, but the liberal concept of alienation presented a powerful counter to the outside agitator thesis, or ideas about innate black criminality that police authorities often relied upon to explain the causes of rebellion. Yet by consistently attributing the violence to black behavior or psychology, or even white racism in the case of the Kerner Commission, officials across the political spectrum ultimately agreed to empower police forces to mitigate the effects of centuries of structural discrimination and exclusion through surveillance, patrol, incarceration, and other forms of social control. Several months after the 1969 rebellion in Harrisburg Public Schools, on June 23rd, a crowd of 200 black residents gathered in front of the Goodyear Pharmacy at the intersection of 13th and Market Street in the city's Allison Hill neighborhood. By this point, the police already had a plan in place to suppress the racial disturbance. 
It had been a year since the visit by the Pennsylvania Human Relations Commission, and housing codes remained largely unenforced. The projects remained segregated, as did by extension elementary schools, and no action had been taken to address unemployment issues in a city where the rate of black unemployment was more than three times that of white unemployment. The people in front of the Goodyear Pharmacy that evening had assembled to watch a peaceful demonstration against police brutality. At the center of the protest was retired schoolteacher, Mary Yancey, who carried a sign with a blunt, inflammatory message. I was brutalized by the pigs. Pamphlets were distributed calling for a boycott of the pharmacy and to protest the beating of one of our black women. Two days before, on June 21st, the 48-year-old Yancey had gone to the pharmacy to buy a pack of cigarettes and was refused service. Goodyear employees called the police. Six officers arrived, according to witnesses. They grabbed Yancey, one policeman shoving his knee against her back, and threw her into a paddy wagon. The officers did not inform Yancey that she was under arrest, but at the station she was booked on charges of disorderly conduct. Yancey led the peaceful demonstration on June 23rd with a dozen or so others, surrounded by a crowd of mostly younger black residents who watched the protest unfold. At seven o'clock, when several carloads of officers appeared, along with Mayor Straub and his aides, the spectators joined in the protest. The officials ordered the gathering to disperse. The young black people responded by throwing bricks and stones at them, the sight of an officer with a shotgun on his hip angered the crowd even more. People marched past the police and started throwing bricks and bottles through the windows of nearby stores. The officer promptly returned his shotgun to his car, but the crowd was already beyond control. The police on the scene responded to the rock-throwing by tear-gassing the crowd. About 30 state troopers soon arrived, and the disorder spread from there through Allison Hill and uptown Harrisburg, down alleys and along main thoroughfares. Windows of stores were shattered, and people driving through the area suffered injuries as black residents threw rocks and bricks at their cars. The next day, June 24th, Officer Raymond Kurtulis, an 11-year veteran of the Harrisburg police force, shot an 18-year-old black youth named Charles Scott three times in the back, killing him. According to Kartulis, he spotted Scott preparing to ignite a Molotov cocktail and fired after the teen refused to drop the homemade bomb. A subsequent ACLU investigation did not uncover any evidence that Scott had a weapon in his possession and concluded that Kartulis did not give a warning before he shot him. The rebellion in Harrisburg began with a comparatively minor incident of police brutality. According to Mary Yancey's account, she had been roughhoused by police and arrested for no good reason, and a protest against that brutality. Now police had killed a black teenager in what the ACLU later termed a summary execution. Kartulis, charged with criminal negligence, was absolved of any wrongdoing by a coroner's jury six weeks later. At the urging of Harrisburg's Black Coalition, Governor Raymond Schaefer directed the Pennsylvania Human Relations Commission to hold another set of investigatory hearings into the racial tension situation. 
As Schaefer explained, the racial tension and the potential of renewed violence in the city of Harrisburg requires that we do everything humanly possible to protect all citizens and at the same time seek ways to immediately relieve tension. The idea was that the hearing should be held right away, to provide a forum for Harrisburg residents to air grievances and seek solutions reasonably, away from the inflammatory emotions of the street. Believing that racism was simply a misunderstanding between black and white residents and not a systemic matter, Schaefer hoped the conversation itself would be enough, that talking things out would lead to a solution. I appeal to all citizens of the capital city to use the commission hearings as the best way to discuss alleged injustices and find new paths to end the differences that separate the races, the governor said. But the Human Relations Commission had already visited the city the year before, and black residents now pointed out that public officials had not abided by or implemented the recommendations made in 1968. People wanted action this time, not more talk. As James Stevens, manager of a market operated by the civil rights organization Ghetto Enterprises in Allison Hill, explained to the commission, if you had pressed recommendations you made last year, this hearing would not be necessary. The second round of Pennsylvania Human Relations Commission hearings began in Harrisburg on Wednesday, July 2nd, 1969, 11 days after Mary Yancey arrived in front of Goodyear Pharmacy with her sign. Hundreds of residents, most of them black, gathered in the auditorium at William Penn Memorial Museum to observe the proceedings, which lasted more than 11 hours with only two breaks. In Cairo, when the investigation by the United States Commission on Civil Rights began on March 23, 1972, U.S. Marshals searched every person entering the hearing room. The city had the highest per capita gun registration rate in Illinois. Both commissions heard testimony from witnesses and representatives from civil rights, nonprofit, and municipal organizations, and from state agencies. Black witnesses in Harrisburg argued that the bridges of dialogue that had been attempted over the prior year, namely a series of discussion groups sponsored by the local PBS station and the previous Pennsylvania Human Relations Commission hearings, could not address the underlying problems. In Illinois, Cairo's black witnesses described violent conditions and the terror caused by white vigilantes and police. They voiced the growing refrain, housing, unemployment, the schools, and the unequal delivery of services. These were the pressing issues, but they argued that it was police behavior that needed to be dealt with first. Black people who appeared before the commissions questioned the purpose of the police, who seemed to introduce violence rather than safety into the community. Activist Richard James charged that the Harrisburg Police Department used oppressive, repressive, genocidal methods in its treatment of black residents. James and other witnesses argued that the police had contributed to the violence in the city's public schools back in February, and more recently had once again overreacted to an otherwise peaceful protest— until the police themselves changed, they would continue to stoke unrest. Witnesses in Cairo voiced almost identical systemic critiques. The way we see it from where we stand is that every time that we strive to do something to help ourselves, 
that there are more policemen armed with guns, more ammunition is brought to put a stop to the drive to better the condition of the Negro, observed Reverend J.J. Cobb. Recently appointed to the city's three-member police and fire commission, Cobb was the first black person in Cairo's history to have an official voice in discussions. This is the way that we see it in this community, and this is the way it is seen across the country. Police tended to respond to any black protest, regardless of form, with violence. It seemed to Cobb and to so many other black people in Cairo, Harrisburg, and across the rest of the country, to be the American way. Indeed, witnesses at the hearings in both states voiced the belief among some black Americans that there was a larger coordinated effort on the part of government authorities to keep black people in their place. Harold F. Posey, coordinator for the Council of Churches of Greater Harrisburg, went so far as to suggest that there was a conspiracy at the federal and state levels and among local officials and authorities to harass black people. Charles Cohen of the United Front in Cairo was convinced that President Richard Nixon was at the head of a conspiracy to destroy responsible black leadership. Illinois Governor Richard Ogilvie and state's attorney and former White Hat leader Peyton Burbling carried out the plan by enabling white supremacists and the police department to terrorize black Cairoites in general and United Front activists in particular. While there isn't evidence of a coordinated conspiracy from Nixon down to the White Hats in Cairo, residents could be forgiven for thinking there was. A conspiracy would have had the same results as the widespread violence exacted on America's black communities. The idea that white authorities were conspiring against black residents further fueled the notion that black people were paranoid about the prevalence and scale of racial oppression. In both Harrisburg and three years later in Cairo, the state proceedings largely focused on accounts of police insensitivity and brutality during the rebellions and in everyday life. Anna Coleman said Harrisburg police beat her son with a billy club on the head when they arrested him for malicious mischief, even though he did not take part in any violence. Several Harrisburg high school students testified about being arrested and held without charges for days, even though they had not participated in the school rebellion in February. Witnesses recounted harassment and beatings by police in normal times. Their testimony persuaded the Pennsylvania Human Relations Commission that police officers, in the performance of arrest of black youths, have resorted to the use of the club or blackjack with such frequency that literally all black citizens are convinced that a primary police policy and objective is to instill fear of police and blacks through the use of club or blackjack on every possible occasion. Even if the brutality itself was imagined or overbalanced, the commission was shaped by the theory of alienation. Nearly every black resident who testified identified a collective mistrust and fear of the police— it would be impossible, the commission concluded, to foster public safety if policing methods were not drastically revised. Cairo residents related incidents of police violence in graphic detail. Former Cairo patrolman Wilbert Beard, one of the three total black officers on the police force in the city's history up to that point, recounted, In some arrests, they, police officers, would have a submachine gun against a black guy's head, 
begging him to move so they could kill him. Russell DeBerry, a black resident of Cairo, revealed his personal experience with the racist police department. DeBerry was detained during a mass arrest on September 29, 1971, after a black youth allegedly struck a white woman, the relative of a police officer, and stole her purse. According to DeBerry, when he arrived at the station house, police chief Bowers announced, I want every nigger in Cairo rounded up, and if that means busting heads to bring them back to jail, I want them brought in. As DeBerry and a group of young black people stood with their arms raised overhead, Bowers continued his rant. I'm not going to take anything from any nigger, he said. None of my police officers' wives, mothers, or grandmothers get knocked in the face or their pocketbook snatched. If they do, some nigger was going to die for it, you know. DeBerry also talked about white vigilantes and how they partnered with police. In one instance, he watched an officer initiate a traffic stop of a black man for a defective taillight when a group of white men, local whites, some merchants from some of the boycotted areas downtown— appeared, surrounded the car, and drew their guns. The White Hats had been disbanded three years earlier, but vigilantes continued to listen to the police radio, operating as a shadow force and often with the tacit consent of law enforcement. Local officials in both cities refused to credit criticism of police departments or black residents' grievances— Harrisburg's Mayor Straub and Police Chief Watts were present during the testimonies of abuse, and on the third day of the hearings, July 9th, they came prepared to defend the department and its officers. Watts was amazed by the amount of criticism my department took from witnesses appearing here, because he could not have enough praise for his officers in the past trouble. As Watts explained, cops tended to utilize force when they felt they were under attack— when young black people cursed at them, called them names, and threw objects at them in the course of their duty. For some reason or other, policemen are supposed to go at it 24 hours a day, take all sorts of verbal abuse, and turn a deaf ear, Watts said, and admitted that we all make mistakes, believe me. We're human beings like everyone else. Straub echoed the chief of police. The city had a great police force, and everybody makes mistakes because we're all human, he said. Straub chided the witnesses for their demeaning and derogatory remarks against our police, who are a last line of defense facing civil chaos. Police work in a racially troubled community was always difficult, and the police department wasn't perfect, but the mayor and the chief were proud of the way police comported themselves during the rebellion. They did not address the fact that an officer had killed a black teenager under questionable circumstances— they implied that derogatory remarks directed at police justified violent retaliation, even as they deemed black violence in response to abusive policing entirely illegitimate. Members of the Cairo establishment likewise denied charges of discrimination and defended the actions of the police department. Former White Hat Jimmy Dale, now Cairo's police commissioner, insisted that the racial aspect of this has been far overblown and that antagonism between the black and white races was far less prevalent than in many other towns who haven't had the notoriety and the publicity we have in Cairo. 
The cause of the racial difficulties in Cairo, he argued, was black protest led by the United Front, which involved relentless shooting at police and caused a great deal of property damage, actions he described as in the nature of civil rights. A movement for civil rights could be nothing but violent, in Dale's view. Police Chief Bowers maintained that his officers bent over backwards to work against the public image of racist Cairo police, for the simple reason, as many of us know, the pendulum has swung terrifically to the left, and it's impossible for an officer to do the things that have been said has been done without losing his position. The civil rights insurgency was the cause of the city's problems, and movements for social justice and anti-racist policies made it impossible for police to perform basic duties. Mass paranoia about racism had effectively paralyzed the police as they saw it. Harrisburg officials could dismiss the testimony of black witnesses during the Pennsylvania Commission hearings, but they could not ignore the critiques of the police department that came from within its own ranks. On the fifth day of the hearings, July 15, 1969, two black officers from the police community relations team, Sergeant William H. Dickey and Patrolman James R. Pitts, testified to the ineffectiveness of the initiative. The team was tasked with developing relationships with community members, investigating allegations of police misconduct, and handling the threat of mass disorder. Its two officers were expected to quell any incipient rebellion by themselves. When the crowd formed at Goodyear Pharmacy, the community relations officers should have been immediately deployed, yet no officials called them. Dickey and Pitts would have known that it was a bad idea for police to brandish shotguns if they hoped to disperse the protesters. Not only did the violent police response provoke community violence, but as Dickey reminded the commission, shotguns certainly can do more harm than bricks. The community relations officers were brought in only after the tear gas had been used, when the situation was already out of hand, according to Dickey. Although Straub and Watts frequently cited the Community Relations Unit as an example of the department's earnest effort to foster better relations with black Harrisburg residents, Dickey and Pitts contradicted them. The Community Relations officers lamented their lack of influence within the department, where fellow cops often referred to them as drones and do-nothing fellows. The Police Evaluation Board, which had been established to handle citizens' complaints, was rendered entirely ineffective. Dickey explained that it was just about impossible to get a police officer to come in for questioning, and therefore impossible to navigate a complaint against a police officer. Both Dickey and Pitts made clear that the problem was not in the community, but in the police. We have found that we can relate to the community, Dickey said. If we are going to work effectively, the police department has got to clean up its own backyard. Community relations meant little if the police department did not fully invest in the initiative and commit to changing the department's culture from the administration down to the rank and file. While the city of Harrisburg made largely empty gestures toward improving police community relations, the white ruling elite of Cairo vehemently resisted the very concept Less than 10% of the $75,000 federal block grant awarded to the Cairo Police Department for such purposes in late 1969 had been spent by 1972. The Illinois Law Enforcement Commission rescinded the remaining money, 
when it learned that the police department had apparently used the funds it did spend to purchase submachine guns. Commissioner Dale and other law enforcement administrators dismissed police community relations as a total failure. An editorial in the white supremacist Tri-State Informer revealed the general attitude among cops and other authorities. Community and police relations boards are nothing more than police control, which in the end only handcuffs police and increases the strength of criminals. The editorial called for more support for elected officials and local police, who stand firm on law and order. In Harrisburg, after six days of hearings, the Pennsylvania Commission concluded that the police department practiced two standards of treatment of people and two standards of law enforcement one standard for the white and another standard for the black. It determined that police resorted to illegal force in specific circumstances. It demonstrated that the department was insensitive to civil rights and the individual and collective feelings of black citizens, and in this way was no different from nearly every city police department in America, a claim that review of the Kerner Report substantiates. The Harrisburg police and their conduct were the product of entrenched hierarchies. The reflection of the insensitivity and racial bias of the white society that employs, trains, controls, and directs them from which the majority of police are recruited, as the commission wrote. Individual officers behaved as they did because they had been trained and conditioned by a racist system. Yet even as it admonished the police department, the state's Human Relations Commission was just as, if not more critical of alienated, irresponsible youths who added to chaos, fear, and racial hatreds in this tense situation. The commission recognized that police brutality plus desperate socioeconomic conditions equaled rebellion, but it also depicted the rebels as emotional and senseless, incapable of fostering effective and rational communication between the community and city authorities. The commission theorized that a small militant corps of black youths were seeking an outlet for pent-up hostilities that police were unable to contain or control. Soon after this hardcore group tipped into violence, a carnival atmosphere induced normally quiescent youths to join in the vandalism, assault upon and harassment of police and firemen. The Pennsylvania Commission did not suggest that outside agitators were involved, but it came close in attributing the violence to a militant corps who recruited other, more impressionable kids. This assumption had become a lodestar of liberal social policy— Officials highlighted underlying conditions and, in the case of the Kerner Commission, concluded that white racism was the source of black Americans' suffering. But the commissions contradicted themselves in that theories of alienation and a militant core of black radicals in reality precluded an understanding of the conditions that precipitated violent collective action. The liberal commissions wanted to have it both ways— Members cast the forces of anti-black racism and black pathology as the twinned sources of the violence. In reviewing the aftermath of Charles Scott's fatal shooting, the Pennsylvania Human Relations Commission concluded that the venting of hostilities and uncontrolled emotion overruled common sense and decency. Although the commission disapproved of the heavy-handed response, officers walking the streets with riot control weapons, helmets, gas masks, and other such paraphernalia 
Ultimately, it was black people's reaction to such things that made police the focal point for group hatred. In the view of the state-level commission, the violence in the city was the product of a radically different conception of the police role and function on the part of black and white residents, the policed and the protected. When resistance is encountered, and the officer then must use force, the commission wrote in its report, any degree of force is applauded by the majority white community as law enforcement and condemned in the black community as police brutality. The violence could be contained or set aside in only two ways, either by the application of overwhelming raw force or by positive meaningful action to remove the inequities that have created it. Harrisburg has a choice. The city could either prevent violence by improving conditions for black people or continue to rely on the police to crack down when rebellions occurred in the future. To a certain extent, Harrisburg and other cities that confronted rebellion were constrained by declining tax bases, state legislatures that were often hostile to urban areas, a national politics of law and order, and regulatory economic policies from the federal level down to the local level. But as the commission itself pointed out, the cost of rigorously enforcing housing codes, creating incentives for the private sector to hire black people, and providing quality low- and middle-income housing, not to mention founding a local human relations commission to quickly respond to charges of discrimination and promote equal opportunity for all residents— will be much less than continuing loss of tax dollars and direct cost to the city that will result from continuance of racial tension. As the commission understood, white flight and the failure to attract industry were themselves the product of the human relations atmosphere in the city, or the reality of racial inequality that could only be solved by meaningful social welfare intervention. Yet in Harrisburg, Cairo, and across the country, officials at all levels ultimately pursued the punitive path. After the violence of the late 1960s and early 1970s, policymakers attempted to relieve police community tensions by pacifying the over-policed and unruly community. The strategy of managing the problems caused by systemic racism with crime control measures left Harrisburg economically stagnant, segregated, and with a failing school system. Throughout the 1970s, Harrisburg lost 21.7% of its residents as middle class and white people accelerated their exodus to the suburbs. By the early 1980s, high rates of reported crime and unemployment made it one of the most distressed cities in the country. It was not until 1983 that local authorities established a separate human relations commission in Harrisburg, over a decade after the state-level commission argued that such a body would be the most meaningful or effective action the city could take to reduce racial tensions. Echoing the Kerner Report's famous warning that the United States was swiftly moving toward two societies, black and white, separate and unequal, the Pennsylvania Human Relations Commission had spoken of the wide gap in understanding and intergroup communication that has created, and will unless changed, perpetuate two distinct and disparate racially circumscribed communities. 
The commission had hoped the proceedings had served a useful purpose, as it had provided, if nothing else, the means by which persons who ordinarily do not engage in person-to-person communication were able to exchange ideas and suggest or commit means to overcome the cause of grievances. Members followed the Kerner Commission in arguing that the full and equal partnership of black Americans in all facets of society cannot reach fruition with the present racist attitudes of the white majority. There existed an increasing need for the development of understanding among peoples in order to attain racial harmony. In short, separate and unequal conditions had produced two different worldviews, two different realities that somehow, despite rampant inequalities that bred violence, could be stitched back together through intergroup communication. Although airing grievances may have given black communities a modicum of solace, the talk and discussion offered by post-rebellion commissions was only that. Venting did not change conditions. It created more unkept promises. Harrisburg and other cities could not talk their way out of inequality. Officials could have used their influence to remedy prevailing conditions while simultaneously acknowledging the power of racism historically and in the present— Yet the actual outcome was ambivalent, not intentionally malicious, but mealy-mouthed and noncommittal. In a sense, the responsibility lies with liberalism itself, in the premise that goodwill, educational opportunities, markets, and limited anti-discrimination laws will solve inequality in due time. The consequences are still with us today. The impact of civil rights legislation has still not reached Cairo nearly a decade later. The Illinois State Advisory Committee to the United States Commission on Civil Rights wrote in its 1975 follow-up report on the 1972 hearings, referring to the laws passed in the middle of the previous decade. If anything, the situation in Cairo had gotten worse. The state's advisory committee had come to Cairo for the first time in 1966 holding the first set of hearings to focus on racial inequality in the city and producing a study entitled, I Reckon It's On Its Way, But It Ain't Got Here Yet, a report on federal civil rights programs in southern Illinois. In both 1966 and in 1975, public housing was segregated, city and county employees were uniformly white, and the public school system was on the verge of running out of funds. The economically stagnated county descended even further as young people in search of jobs and older people with the means left Cairo. Between 1950 and 1970, the city's population dropped by 50%. As the advisory committee observed in 1966, the burden of decline fell disproportionately on black residents— Three-quarters of black families and one-quarter of white families in Cairo lived in deep poverty, defined as income below 50% of the federal poverty level. Racist practices were so entrenched in the Cairo Police Department that officers beat a black sheriff's deputy for arresting a white man. Local, state, and federal agencies had joined a vicious circle of racial discrimination and economic depression, the committee concluded. Amid a complete breakdown of law and justice, black Cairoites rebelled a year after the 1966 commission finished its work. The National Guard was called in, and white vigilantes mobilized. 
Later, authorities failed to act on the warnings from the earlier commission, pursuing instead a set of responses centered on draconian policing. As a result, the vicious cycle, identified by the committee in 1966, had persisted for a decade, as had the violence. State and federal authorities were aware of the rampant civil rights violations in Cairo, but did not intervene with the force necessary to stop them. The primary aid officials provided had come from the federal level in the form of the United States Commission on Civil Rights. Authorities had arrived in March 1972 and held a public conversation about violence and racism. In the end, the commission made recommendations to improve conditions and help the city meet civil rights standards. By 1975, barely any of the 1972 commission's recommendations had been implemented. The Cairo City Council refused to even pass a resolution stating, as the Federal Commission had urged, its intention to ensure the independence of the Cairo Police Department to at least formally distance itself from the white vigilantes. It would be a step toward making the department appear responsive to the law enforcement needs of the entire community. And yet there was no progress. Nonviolent protest hadn't worked. Neither had violence. Although Cairo was no longer in a state of active war by the mid-1970s, residents weren't counting on public officials to improve their lives. Even before the Federal Commission on Civil Rights hearings, Cairo's united front increasingly focused its energies on economic development. Beginning in 1971 and operating through the Egyptian Housing Corporation, the united front provided homes and jobs for low-income families, black and white, as the city clearly would not. Even though the corporation tried to help all Cairoites, the white ruling elite resisted its efforts. The city council denied the corporation's bids on vacant land owned by the city in 1971 and 1972, essentially trapping black residents in shacks or under the gunfire in the otherwise more desirable pyramid courts. Any changes in Cairo after its war would have to be made by black residents and their allies. The Egyptian corporation went around city authorities, acquiring land on which it built homes with seed money from the Illinois Housing Development Authority. Soon enough, Cairo residents could own homes for $65 to $85 a month with no down payment. By 1980, the corporation had constructed about 200 houses and created hundreds of jobs in the process. United Front members also secured jobs for black residents through the Pyramid Court's Tenants Council, which received subcontracts from both the Department of Housing and Urban Development and Alexander County to build new roofs and make other improvements to the existing housing project. The Tenants Council worked with the Lawyers' Committee for Civil Rights Under Law, filing a class-action lawsuit that finally led to the desegregation of public housing in Cairo. The Lawyers' Committee, a team of white liberal attorneys who arrived in Cairo in September 1969, proved to be a critical line of defense against racial oppression in the city. Over the following decade, the Lawyers' Committee successfully challenged unconstitutional ordinances including one that prohibited gatherings of two or more people in federal district court, contested disciplinary decisions handed down by Cairo school administrators, and provided assistance to residents who had been arrested or abused. By 1974, 
Thirty black families lived in the previously all-white Elmwood place, and five white families had moved into Pyramid Courts. The shootings from the nearby levee, the junkyard, and the police department's armored Great Intimidator vehicle had ended. The Lawyers' Committee's final case in 1980 effectively secured black representation on the city council for the first time in Cairo's history, offering a new degree of political power to black people even as the city fell deeper into economic depression. The committee's suit challenged the at-large city council elections that prevented black residents, who at that point made up just under half the city's population, from electing their preferred candidates. Charles Cohen was elected to the council in 1983, which, with his arrival, had three black and four white representatives. Although they were no longer fighting with their fists in the streets or exchanging gunfire, Cohen consistently sparred in the council chambers with Mayor Alan Moss, a former white hat and prominent member of the UCCA. Moss won the mayoralty in 1976 and held it for 15 years, it seems crazy to think that just because the mayor hates me, he's going to let this whole town dry up, Cohen told a reporter in 1985 of Moss's strategy. As Cohen saw it, Moss perceives his role as trying to keep what they have, and the way to do that is to do nothing. Cohen understood, perhaps better than anyone else, that the sustained violence against black people in Cairo in the past decade led to the slow death of the city consumed by its own racism. Everyone lost. Unemployment consistently topped 20% through the end of the 1980s, with black residents still unemployed at a rate three times that of their white counterparts. One-third of Cairo residents lived below the poverty line, an adult vocational school was still open and training welfare recipients for non-existent jobs as oil rig operators and furniture upholsters. The roller rink Cohen and others had fought to desegregate with John Lewis and other SNCC activists in the early 1960s closed, as did the disco and the movie theater. The history of Cairo across this era is both exceptional in its violence while at the same time broadly representative of the violence of American racism and the lengths white Americans would go to retain their power. The United Front's three-year boycott had led, by the early 1970s, to the closure of 17 discriminatory white-owned businesses downtown, about one-third of the city's stores, and nothing replaced them. The city bid for one of two new state prisons in the late 1970s, a $25 million prison construction project that would have created 400 jobs. But Cairo was passed over due to its economic instability and declining population. By the mid-1980s, its hospital closed due to lack of funds. Cairo began to gain the reputation of a ghost town. I don't think Cairo's ever coming back, said Jerry Gibson, the white owner of a business that was one of the few left standing in the downtown district. There's so much hate here. There's always so much hate in Cairo. In 1968, the Kerner Commission had clearly described the racial dynamics in Cairo and other cities in post-civil rights America. Yet with little incentive from government authorities to follow the recommendations of its report, 
state-level human relations commissions, the United States Commission on Civil Rights, lawmakers, and other officials had since then avoided taking steps that might have led to meaningful change. Even with an entire city's health on the line, officials did not act. As the Kerner Commission had predicted, absent a massive redistribution of resources carried out at the national level, rebellion would remain a fact of American life, as would white retaliation. The Commission suggested that continued inaction by the federal government could quite conceivably lead to a kind of urban apartheid with semi-martial law in many major cities, enforced residents of Negroes in segregated areas, and a drastic reduction in personal freedom for all Americans, particularly Negroes. This exact scenario played out in Cairo. Harrisburg, and many other communities of color across the United States in the years after the Civil Rights Movement. We started with some very great hopes, longtime black activist Preston Ewing reflected in 1985 on the movement in Cairo. Now there are a lot of awful ironies in this town. The decision by local authorities to respond to egalitarian demands by shoring up white supremacy, decisions exasperated by state and federal inaction, killed the city in the end. It is no longer blacks against whites in Cairo, said Mayor Moss, the former active white supremacist in 1987. It is Cairo against the world. Today, Cairo has just over 2,000 remaining residents, and two-thirds of them are black. Whites escaped in the decades after the war in the city, while black residents on the whole still live with the violent legacies of American racism and of the paths not chosen. Part 2 Legacies Chapter 8 the system. Eighteen-year-old Michael Culp spent Saturday, May 17, 1980, at the beach with his older brother, 22-year-old Jeffrey Culp, and his brother's girlfriend, 23-year-old Deborah Getman. The Culp brothers had recently moved to Miami from Spring City, Pennsylvania, finding work in the shipping center at the department store Burdines, while Getman worked as a waitress at a fast-food restaurant. After leaving the beach, and with their lives before them, they drove through the heart of Liberty City, Miami's largest black neighborhood. As the white trio approached 62nd Street and 13th Avenue near the Liberty Square housing project at around 7 o'clock, people started pelting Culp's Dodge Dart with rocks and bottles. Then a concrete block crashed through the windshield, and the car careened across the median, hitting 75-year-old Albert Nelson and slamming 11-year-old Shinrika Perry against an apartment unit in Liberty Square. Perry had been playing softball with friends. The car crushed the girl's pelvis, sending her to the hospital for six months. She would lose her left hip and leg. Bystanders didn't know the extent of Perry's injuries at the time— but the sight of her blood on the wall and her crumpled body was enough. Some immediately began attacking the Culp brothers. Over a period of about 15 minutes, and with hundreds watching, black residents punched and kicked the young white men. 
The assailants, ranging in age from 12 to 40, hit the Culp brothers with bricks and a 23-pound concrete slab and dropped a newspaper dispenser on Jeffrey Culp's head. Someone cut off his ear and part of his tongue. One man drove over their bodies with the green Cadillac, then proceeded to stab them with a screwdriver to the cheers of the crowd. The violence finally came to an end when a homeless man known in the community as Ernest placed a red rose in Jeffrey Culp's blood-covered mouth. The elder Culp brother died nearly a month later. Michael Culp survived, as did Getman, who had taken off running through the housing project as soon as the car had come to its abrupt stop. On the other side of Liberty Square, a black taxi driver took the young woman out of the area. In the crucible years of the late 1960s and early 1970s, rebellions usually began after an encounter with a police officer or in direct response to police brutality or other violent acts committed by whites against black people. Rebellions could take numerous courses. Some fizzled out after the rock-and-bottle-throwing phase. Others expanded to looting, throwing firebombs and sniping, Miami's 1980 rebellion, by contrast, started with random assaults by black civilians on white civilians. An hour after the attack on the Culps, and in the very same intersection, a group of black people fatally beat a white man in his early 20s, as well as two white high school freshmen. Four other people, all of them white, except for a light-skinned Guyanese immigrant, mistaken as white, were murdered by bricks, cars, and fire in Liberty City that evening. Black people attacked white civilians during the rebellions in the late 1960s and early 1970s, and in later rebellions, including Los Angeles in 1992 and Cincinnati in 2001. But none of this violence approached the levels seen in Miami in 1980, when harming white people was a primary objective from the start of the uprising. After the rebellion, the Ford Foundation produced a report titled Miami 1980, A Different Kind of Riot, which called the indiscriminate attacks unprecedented in this century. The nation had not witnessed this kind of anti-white violence since Nat Turner's rebellion in 1831. As the historian Manning Marable wrote shortly after the uprising, Miami's violence was a 20th century slave revolt. In all, 250 white people across Dade County sought medical attention due to the attacks, suffering injuries ranging from cuts and bruises to severe head trauma. All told, eight white civilians were killed. To officials in Washington, D.C., and the State House in Tallahassee, and to much of the American public, the violence in Miami appeared out of nowhere— the post-civil rights rebellions had largely dissipated by the time Richard Nixon resigned from the presidency in 1974. In those eruptions, black residents collectively responded to the escalation of police patrols and surveillance in their communities with political violence. Yet by the mid-1970s, amid deindustrialization, disinvestment, and the increasing police presence in low-income urban communities, rebellions were far less frequent the beginning of mass incarceration helped bring the uprisings to an end. The systematic imprisonment of young black men that started in this era effectively removed from cities a significant portion of the young people who had committed and sustained the violence. 
By the mid-1970s, 75% of black people in American prisons were under the age of 30. Although black Americans have been disproportionately incarcerated since the Civil War, until the 1970s, they amounted to about a third of the nation's prison population. This changed in the mid-1970s, when black and Latinx groups began to approach majorities in state and federal prisons. As people of color were getting systemically locked up, the total number of Americans incarcerated in state and federal prisons ballooned from just under 200,000 in 1970 to just over 300,000 by 1980, a 50% increase in a decade. The mass incarceration of black Americans that started in the 1970s can be partly attributed to the socioeconomic conditions that lay at the root of the rebellions. And that became even worse as the decade wore on with the end of the war on poverty and the simultaneous escalation of the war on crime. In 1972, when black Americans represented 12% of the nation's population, 42% of all Americans behind bars were black, while 34% of black Americans lived below the poverty line, compared to 10% of white Americans. Access to educational and employment opportunities declined further still, as the federal government and then state and local authorities withdrew from social welfare programs. More than any other factor, including even race, the absence of employment and educational opportunities resulting from the new politics of austerity that hit black communities particularly hard determined the likelihood of future incarceration. By the mid-1970s, 64% of black prisoners in state prisons did not possess a high school diploma. Even as black Americans were sent to prison in greater numbers and for longer sentences, Another, in some ways opposing, trend became evident. They were making significant gains in political representation. During the era of rebellion, there were few black faces on city councils, in state legislatures, and in the federal government. But as the number of black Americans of voting age increased from 10.3 million in 1964 to 13.5 million in 1972, and with the Voting Rights Act of 1965 and voter registration drives creating many more black voters, the number of black politicians soared. Whereas at the height of rebellion, black Americans appeared to be locked out of political power and to have no advocates in government positions, by the mid-1970s this had changed, with levels of black political leadership resembling those of the Reconstruction era a century prior. The formation of the Congressional Black Caucus in 1971 represented the shift. An emerging cohort of thousands of new black politicians serving at all levels of government promised to reform the system, which many had critiqued as racist, from the inside. Some of them would attempt to bring about the changes that both nonviolent and violent protesters demanded through official channels. Black elected officials began campaigns to bring job training programs, welfare provisions, health care, and social services to their constituents. It seemed the black freedom struggle had shifted from direct action to formal politics. Yet even as black Americans were sent in greater numbers to cell blocks and prisons, to the halls of Congress, and to state capitol buildings— 
violent political rebellion did not stop entirely, nor did state-sanctioned violence. The overbearing presence of police could still lead to rupture, and some residents continued the practice of throwing rocks and bricks at officers when they arrived to monitor and detain people. But black Americans had more or less resigned themselves to the policing of everyday life. In the last decades of the 20th century and into the 21st, major rebellions tended to break out only after exceptional incidents of police brutality or miscarried justice. The precipitating incident in Miami was an example of the latter, although police violence played a decisive role in the buildup to rebellion. The black residents of Liberty City, as well as Overtown, Coconut Grove, Brownsville, and other enclaves in Dade County, were reacting against an entire system, policing, the courts, the prisons, that offered them little hope of justice. In Miami that year, in Los Angeles in 1992, Cincinnati in 2001, Ferguson, Missouri in 2014, and Minneapolis and other cities in 2020, Rebellions started in response to extraordinary moments of official violence or disregard, not to everyday encounters with law enforcement. And in part, for the same reason, all of these latter-day rebellions received widespread national coverage in the news media. While Cairo, Harrisburg, and other cities attracted the attention of the national press— the reporting tended to be surface-level and in sites of ongoing rebellions, sporadic— of course, the advent of cable news and later of social media allowed for the dissemination of information, and of imagery in particular, to a degree that was impossible decades earlier. With sustained national attention came federal action. The government in D.C. did not directly participate in putting down rebellions after the spring of 1968, but beginning with Miami in 1980, the scale and the stakes of the events required commitment above the state level. Whether through federal riot relief grants, Miami, the deployment of federal troops, Los Angeles, or Justice Department investigations into police violence, Cincinnati, rebellions since 1980 have not been mere matters of local pacification and administration. The differences in these later rebellions were not limited to origins and responses. The results, too, suggested that a new era had arrived. By the 1980s, law enforcement authorities and police unions enjoyed even greater power and influence, further constraining reform efforts of the kind that had been proposed by the liberal-leaning commissions from Kerner on down. Where once transformational change had seemed merely unlikely, now it appeared to be impossible. The cumulative origins of the Miami Rebellion simmered through the 15 months prior to the attacks on the Culp brothers and the others that followed. In that period, a number of high-profile cases of police violence managed to shock a black community that had otherwise become inured to such acts. In early January 1979, a white Florida highway patrol officer named Willie T. Jones stopped an 11-year-old black girl, informed her that she fit the description of a candy thief, ordered her to get into the backseat of his car, and molested her. Jones failed a lie detector test, but was released on his own recognizance and was not sentenced to prison. A month later, 
Dade County Metropolitan Officers, Metro Police, terrorized, pistol-whipped, and punched a black junior high school teacher and his son during a raid on the wrong house. The father and son were charged with resisting arrest, obstructing a police officer in the performance of his duties, and with a battery on a police officer. While these charges were eventually dropped, no action was taken against the uniformed men involved. In November 1979, 22-year-old Randy Heath was shot and killed by a white off-duty police officer as he urinated next to a warehouse. The officer who killed Heath, Larry Shockley, did not face serious repercussions even after a judge found probable cause that Shockley had committed manslaughter. He was briefly suspended from mishandling his weapon. Soon after the incident, Shockley received a merit pay increase based on the high degree of initiative he exhibited. Black Miamians believed their neighborhoods were under siege by police, and they had no one to appeal to for help. State's attorney Janet Reno declined to prosecute the child-abusing state trooper or the police officers who violently attacked or killed black residents— Reno did, however, vigorously pursue a criminal case against Johnny L. Jones, the superintendent of Miami's public schools and the highest-ranking black official in the city. Jones, charged by Reno's office in February 1980 with second-degree grand theft for planning to steal $9,000 worth of luxury plumbing fixtures from Bond Plumbing Company for his vacation home, was immediately suspended from the school board. Many black residents believed Jones had been framed, that the case was part of a larger plot to remove him from office. The trial aired in its entirety on Miami public television. The scandal was consumed by thousands of people in Miami of all races. On April 30th, just over three weeks before the rebellion broke out, Jones was convicted by an all-white jury and sentenced to three years in prison. Yet the most egregious development— the one that directly precipitated the rebellion was the acquittal of four Metro police officers by an all-white, all-male jury on charges stemming from the fatal beating of Black Liberty City resident Arthur McDuffie on December 17, 1979. McDuffie, a 33-year-old divorced insurance executive, father of two young daughters and a former Marine, had borrowed his cousin's black-and-orange 1973 Kawasaki 900 motorcycle and, after an evening spent visiting friends, was heading home. According to the police, at 1.15 in the morning, McDuffie failed to stop at a red light and allegedly waved his middle finger at an officer in a nearby parked cruiser. An eight-minute chase ensued, with 12 officers pursuing McDuffie through the streets of northwestern Miami before he finally came to a halt. McDuffie allegedly fought back as a group of officers swarmed him. For at least three minutes, some of the officers viciously assaulted him with heavy 18-inch flashlights. McDuffie died several days afterward. As the coroner would later testify, they had shattered his skull inflicting injuries equivalent to falling from a four-story building and landing head-first on concrete. The officers had immediately tried to cover up their crime by staging the incident as though the victim, still alive at the time and lying on the street in a coma and with his head split open, had been injured in a motorcycle accident. They ran over McDuffie's borrowed Kawasaki with their cruisers, 
then used their blood-stained flashlights to bang up the bike some more. When other officers arrived to investigate the accident around five o'clock, they quickly realized that evidence had been tampered with or destroyed. As news reports drew attention to the inconsistencies surrounding McDuffie's death, and as black Miamians grew suspicious for one of the officers involved, Charles Viverka, the pressure was too much. He turned himself in at police headquarters on December 26th, nine days after the killing, and claimed to be overcome with guilt that McDuffie's children were without their father on Christmas. Believing that the officers could not receive a fair trial in Miami, defense attorneys had the proceedings moved to Tampa, where, in a case that strongly resembled the killing of McDuffie, a white police officer had been recently acquitted by an all-white jury for beating a young black motorcyclist to death following a routine traffic stop. Local Miami news stations did not air the trial in its entirety, as they had for Johnny Jones's trial, but they did broadcast clips, including Viverka's graphic account of the beating. After four weeks of testimony that exposed the viciousness of the officers involved, as well as their obvious attempt to cover up a brutal killing, the all-white jury in Tampa delivered a verdict of not guilty after less than three hours of deliberation. Black Miamians held Janet Reno largely responsible for the outcome. We were all waiting for the verdict in the McDuffie case, an older black man explained, because down here Janet Reno is a cold Hitler to the black people. During the Clinton administration, 13 years later, Reno would become the first woman to serve as Attorney General of the United States. Black people in Miami had protested peacefully in January 1980, after it became clear that police had killed McDuffie. They then watched as the criminal case against the officers involved worked its way through the justice system. Black Miamians hoped that the preponderance of evidence would lead to convictions. They were more than outraged by the results. The verdict seemed to confirm that Reno and the legal system she represented were incapable of protecting black people against police violence— Compared to the vigorous prosecution of Jones for mere theft, the double standard was glaring. I watched the McDuffie case and the Jones case on the TV. You could see that Jones didn't get no justice, said 19-year-old Aaron Mack. But they did let those polices go and they killed somebody. All Jones was accused of was trying to steal something. You know that ain't right. The apparent impunity of the police reinforced the sense among black Miamians that they were all, each and every one of them, vulnerable if not in danger. All the McDuffie thing did was to make it crystal clear to them that even a middle-class nigger who supposedly had made it can be jumped on, stumped on, and done in by the white power structure, said longtime Miami activist Wellington Roll. The verdict was announced in Tampa just before noon on Saturday, May 17th, five months to the day after McDuffie's killing. When the news reached Miami in the mid-afternoon, people began to gather together for support and solidarity. At the James E. Scott Homes, the massive housing project in Liberty City that had one of the highest crime rates in the state of Florida, a 19-year-old man in the crowd could be heard saying, We watched the trial every night, all those pictures and descriptions explaining how they beat the man to death, and they found those guys guilty of nothing? Not nothing? That's like saying the man didn't die. 
The McDuffie Rebellion was sparked not by police violence itself, but by the court's authorization of that violence. Let it be an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, another young black man said. When we try it their way, look what they do to us. The justice system had proven time and time again to function primarily as a means to lock black people away for increasingly long prison terms and to sanction relentless police brutality. The young people protesting at the James E. Scott homes were now prepared to take the law into their own hands. The decade of the 1970s, wrote Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan, who had become one of the nation's leading experts on black poverty, was the first in which, as a group, black Americans with respect to white Americans were better off at the beginning than at the end. By 1980, 15 years after the formal end of Jim Crow and the extension of citizenship rights to black Americans, Record numbers of black college graduates flowed into elected office, and people like Arthur McDuffie entered the white-collar industries newly open to them. Yet as a formidable black middle class emerged during the 1970s, black unemployment and infant mortality rates remained twice as high as those of white Americans. Whereas Asian, Cuban, and Latin American groups had begun to successfully integrate into white communities— for black residents in major U.S. cities, including Miami, segregation remained as much a fact of life in 1980 as it had been in the 1940s. Living conditions had improved somewhat. By 1980, only 6% of black households lacked an indoor flushing toilet, whereas the figure was about half in the 1950s. But overall, the housing available to low-income black families was of poor quality. And although black poverty rates had fallen in the 1960s, reaching a low of 30% by the early 1970s, the recession in the middle of the latter decade saw many black Americans descend back into poverty. Even as a fortunate few black families enjoyed upward mobility and political representation, the 1970s was a time of regression and decline for low-income black communities across the United States. Miami illustrated these downward trends perhaps more starkly than any other city, in part because of the rapid demographic transformation it went through during those ten years. As migrants fleeing communist Cuba found refuge in Miami, about 23,000 arrived in the month preceding the 1980 rebellion alone. Many got jobs black Americans had historically filled in the city's tourism and service industry— as well as in clerical and factory work, and in household service. Unemployment among black Miamians nearly tripled between 1968 and 1978, exceeding the national average for black Americans by 1980. In some black neighborhoods, 85% of young people were believed to be out of work. Tracking with national trends, the number of semi-skilled and white-collar black workers in Miami doubled during the 1970s, but black-owned businesses spiraled into a sharp decline. According to Ford Foundation researchers, black residents owned 25% of all gas stations in Dade County in 1960. By 1979, that figure had dwindled to 9%, while Cuban and South and Central American-owned stations quadrupled from 12 to 48%. 
the federal government was partially responsible for these developments and that it favored Cuban and Latin American entrepreneurs for contracts and Small Business Association, also called SBA, grants. Between 1968 and 1979, Latinx applicants received $47.3 million, or about 47% of the total SBA grants in Miami, while Black applicants were awarded a paltry $6.5 million. As Cuban and other Latin Americans built a flourishing economy in Little Havana and opened up meat markets, laundromats, dry cleaners, and grocery store franchises in Liberty City and other segregated black areas, the average annual gross of these businesses was $83,890, twice that of black-owned businesses in the city. U.S. immigration measures reinforced the new and rigid racial hierarchies in Miami— in contrast to the open-arms, open-heart stance the federal government and local authorities took toward Cubans fleeing Fidel Castro's regime, black Haitian refugees were met with hostility and exclusionary policies. Between 1978 and 1980, about 30,000 political refugees from Haiti arrived in the Miami area, fleeing the U.S.-backed dictatorship of Jean-Claude Duvalier. They were denied due process upon entry— systematically refused asylum, and many were deported. Black Miamians linked their own second-class status to the nation's policy toward Haitians. It is unconscionable. Florida NAACP President Charles W. Cherry said of Jimmy Carter that a president who admits the black vote was a decisive factor in his electoral victory would choose to ignore the pleas of the black community who look upon the Haitians' treatment in direct correlation with his insensitivity to the needs of black Americans. When violence broke out after the McDuffie verdict, demonstrators folded critiques of immigration policies into their rebellion against the criminal justice system. Even as black Miami grew more isolated during the 1970s, law enforcement authorities believed they had created a good working relationship with the black community, in the words of Miami Chief of Police Kenneth Harms. In the 1960s and early 1970s, black Miamians had lived under the regime of Walter Headley, who famously declared at a press conference in 1967, when the looting starts, the shooting starts, and bragged about police violence— we don't mind being accused of police brutality. They haven't seen anything yet. They'll learn they can't get bailed out of the morgue. Chief Headley's get-tough style led to an uprising in August 1968 during the Republican National Convention. 950 National Guardsmen were deployed, and the rebellion ended with the wounding of a black child and the deaths of two black men at the hands of police officers. After 1968, the Miami police implemented new community relations initiatives, as did many departments across the country. The Miami Police Department started discussion groups with community members, sensitivity training sessions for officers, and crime watch programs whereby community volunteers patrolled neighborhoods in an effort to discourage criminal activity. The department also created a new role for police in public schools— its primary effect was to criminalize black students and, following a federal order, actively recruited black officers to the force. Yet regardless of how committed the police were to these programs, the impact was limited. What the riot showed was that, 
when it all hit the fan, the openness of the department and all the effort at good police community relations made no difference, said Captain Larry Bimler of the 1980 Rebellion. The challenges in Miami and other cities did not begin and end with the police, and the measures to relieve tensions between the community and law enforcement were insufficient considering the broader challenges black residents faced. In any case, and despite the ostensibly friendlier approach taken by the Miami Police Department under Chief Harms, police violence was still a regular occurrence, as the McDuffie killing demonstrated. In 1979, the primary new measure taken by the Miami police was to withdraw. The officers, most of whom lived in the new suburbs in the south and southwestern part of Dade County, usually did not come into contact with black people outside of police work, and even while on the job, now avoided contact whenever possible. As a result of the new hands-off approach, arrests for traffic violations had declined by more than 50% in the year prior to the rebellion, and interrogations in the field decreased by 80% in the Liberty Square housing project between 1979 and 1980. When police did assert themselves in segregated black communities, groups of residents, mainly young people who were occasionally joined by adults, would frequently taunt officers and hurl various objects their way. It was not unusual for cars to be rocked and bottled on Friday and Saturday nights, Chief Harms said. What usually happens, Metro Police Captain Douglas Hughes explained, is that people would start yelling, get whitey or get the mother, and then a bottle would crash near the cops. And no matter what you're doing, usually just trying to arrest someone and get him out of there, they start yelling, he's beating the man, he's beating the man. The community's reaction to the mere presence of police put officers in a difficult situation. If you stand there and make a confrontation, you'll escalate it. It can easily get out of control, Harms concluded. Time and time again, when making arrests within a black area, the possibility of conflict is escalated. So the police retreated. In the James E. Scott homes, police stopped responding to all but the most serious incidents. The maze-like design of the housing project, made up of one- or two-story apartment homes separated by small alleys, frustrated attempts to patrol the area effectively. Residents would try to throw up barricades against police by pushing dumpsters into the alleys to trap officers or block them from entering. A single 911 call was suspect and often ignored, as it could be a ruse to attack an officer. During daylight hours, if several emergency calls came in, police would show up in teams of two to investigate. If the calls came at night, three separate cars would arrive at the Scott homes, one to look for traps, one to respond to the situation, and one to provide a quick escape if a crowd gathered and violence appeared likely. God forbid they should have a conflict with the black citizen, Hughes said, his sarcasm perhaps indicating the common belief that black residents were paranoid about racism and overly sensitive to policing. The decision to withdraw, to create further distance between officers on the beat and the citizens they were charged with keeping safe, only contributed to fear of the police among residents and made state-sanctioned violence more likely. As Hughes admitted to researchers, it's always easier to shoot people you don't know. The principle of self-defense had guided earlier rebellions, 
and black Miamians saw their own violence as a declaration of dignity in the face of unequal conditions and a deeply unjust legal system. The riot was when we got back our self-respect, Miami Urban League President Willard Fair said after the fact. What do you think would happen in this community if black folk just sat back? Ask Clyde Petaway, the assistant director of the James E. Scott Community Association, a federally funded anti-poverty agency. We would have been living in human bondage again. Fairs and Petaway's views were shared by most black residents. The participants in the rebellion represented a surprisingly class and age-diverse group, particularly in comparison to the large-scale uprisings of the mid to late 1960s and early 1970s. The Miami Herald partnered with the Behavioral Science Research Institute at Coral Gables to conduct a survey of 450 randomly selected people in Miami after the unrest, a sample size similar to the 437 Detroit residents the Kerner Commission interviewed after the rebellion in 1967. In Miami, more than twice the number of people aged 16 and over claimed to have participated in the revolt when compared with Detroit, where the uprising was considered one of the most age-diverse of its era. Some of the middle-class black professionals who had condemned the violence in Miami in 1968 joined the rebellion 12 years later, defying the public stereotype of the rioter as a poor and unemployed member of the criminal class, only 32% of people arrested in Miami during the rebellion had prior arrest records, compared to 74% in Watts in 1965 and 74.2% in Newark in 1967. Older Miamians may not have actively participated, but many reported setting up lawn chairs in front of the stucco buildings of the Scott Homes in Liberty Square to watch the roiling violence unfold. Among the seemingly unexpected participants was a 32-year-old black lawyer employed by the state of Florida who attended an evening rally that had been hastily organized for 8 o'clock by black leaders in the NAACP shortly after the McDuffie verdict was announced. 3,000 residents gathered for the protest at the county's criminal justice complex bearing placards that read, America is a damn lie, and chanting, Reno must go. We shall overcome, they sang. The lawyer became consumed with rage, according to his own account, like many others at the protest. When reports hit the airwaves about the attacks on the Culp brothers and other white residents in Liberty City and Coconut Grove, which had occurred about an hour before, several young men began taunting police inside the justice complex and soon shattered a portion of the glass entryway before leading a crowd to occupy the first floor of the building. The black lawyer, clad in a three-piece suit, felt compelled to join in and do something. I didn't want to let the moment pass. As he recalled, all I could think about was how the criminal justice system I respected put its foot on my neck and face. Although the lawyer did not help overturn police cruisers and set them on fire, he did tear antennas from their hoods. The destruction at and near the justice complex lasted until around 10 o'clock, when Miami police mustered a force of 70 officers who marched in, 10 across, equipped with helmets, face shields, and three-foot riot sticks. As soon as they saw the officers in formation, the rebels dispersed, moving north to Overtown and Liberty City. 
Across Dade County, residents in the working-class communities of Perrine and Homestead and in the middle-class enclaves of Opelaka and Carroll City joined the rebellion. Once the uprising spread outside of Miami proper, the violence changed. Businesses replaced white civilians as the primary targets. As the rebellion continued through Sunday, May 18th, residents looted stores for basic necessities, including food and clothing, as well as Harley-Davidson motorcycles and television sets. That afternoon, a 47-year-old unemployed laundress and mother of seven, whom interviewers called Willa J., was arrested with her husband, Henry, a construction worker. Henry had ventured outside and said to Willa when he returned, "'My God,' It looks like the world is on fire. Willa wanted to see the action for herself, so she convinced Henry to drive through the flames in Liberty City. Old people was just carrying chairs, lamps, you name it. Everybody was just really helping themselves, as Willa described the scene. At a seafood market, people grabbed as many boxes of frozen shrimp as they could possibly carry, but Willa's eyes were drawn to a stove and a freezer sitting outside the store. Henry, let me get this freezer, she pleaded. He hesitated at first, but eventually gave in to his wide-eyed wife. As he prepared to load the freezer in their truck, a policeman told them to halt. The officer had instructed others with stolen goods to do the same, but according to Willa, they just looked back and laughed at him and kept on going. Willa and Henry were arrested, as they put it, with our mouths wide open. We hadn't even put the freezer on the truck. The officer took them to Dade County Jail at 4 o'clock, where they remained until 6 the next morning before being released on their own recognizance. Although Willa herself had never had a bad encounter with the police, an officer had shot and killed her 21-year-old son during a drug deal in 1971, while another son was beaten by police in her own backyard in a separate incident. Black people have a right to hate, Willa concluded. They really have a right. It's so many things these people do and get by with it. So many years they beat up poor people, you'd think it would get better, but it's no better. Many other black residents seemed to share Willa's position, helping themselves to goods that were systematically inaccessible to them, the act of looting their right in a racist society. Roughly 24 hours after the rebellion began, the commercial district of Liberty City had been decimated, with nearly every business on a three-mile stretch of 7th Avenue cleaned out and torched, most would be bulldozed, not rebuilt. Some black-owned businesses were hit, but for the most part, the rebels left them alone. Only one of the 102 stores burned to the ground during the rebellion was owned by a black person, and it happened to share the same building as Tony's Trading Post, a white-owned business that was targeted. Several warehouses that employed large numbers of black workers were also spared. This had been the practice from the Watts uprising onward, when black owners placed Soul Brother or black-owned signs on their establishments. The appeal to solidarity did not always succeed. Samuel Watts' clothing store in Liberty City, which had operated for 12 years, was left barren. Rather than focus on the people who took underwear, shirts, and shoes from his shelves, however— Watts expressed outrage at the Miami police, who watched the whole thing happen. They were just standing there, Watts said, as if they were telling the people, take your best shot, we're not going to do anything. 
This was not an isolated incident. At times during the rebellion, the cops retreated and left residents to their own devices, a continuation of their general approach to policing Liberty City. The rebellions of the late 1960s and early 1970s had taught police officials that a heavy-handed response tended to exacerbate the violence. But in Miami, the scale of the uprising, 18 deaths, 370 injuries, 787 arrests, and $100 million in property damage, meant that local law enforcement would not have been able to extinguish the rebellion, even if they had wanted to. City and county police lacked the manpower, and there weren't enough shotguns, face masks, riot sticks, and walkie-talkies for the hundreds of officers on duty. The arrival of 1,000 National Guardsmen just after midnight on Sunday, May 18th, helped keep residents in their homes, but law enforcement still struggled to maintain control. Officers did not understand their own weapons, for one— they hurled incendiary grenades, which release heat on discharge and can start fires, into stores in an effort to disperse looters, only to destroy the stores in the process. Triple chaser tear bombs discharged their chemical load in three directions, and the Miami police often gassed themselves. Miami Assistant Chief of Police Michael Cosgrove and other law enforcement administrators would conclude that police training had been deficient— Officers needed to be taught how to properly apply non-deadly force. Complaints about widespread police brutality quickly emerged. One cop would hold your hand down on the ground, and another would smash it with the butt of his gun, a young man said of his arrest. Other residents reported a festive aspect to policing during the rebellion, at least when the cops weren't gassing themselves. We saw the National Guard lob grenades into stores just for kicks, a black witness claimed. After police arrested a group of suspects who took food and other essentials in Zaire's department store, National Guardsmen and Miami police officers smashed the windows, wrecked the engines, and slashed the tires of a dozen cars they assumed belonged to the suspects. Every car was spray-painted, looter. I am a cheap, no-good looter thief, and so on. A black witness observed they were getting a kick out of it. Miami Mayor Maurice Ferre suspended four of the officers involved, calling them bums, but after police protested the decision, their own signs read, I'm a bum too, Ferre overturned his own decision. Very few police officers were attacked or suffered serious injuries. The violence was not directed at us said Lieutenant Billy Riggs, head of the Special Threat and Response Unit, the Miami Police Department's SWAT team. They didn't really want to get us. If they did, and at one point we had 50 or 60 police officers against 5,000 or 6,000 rioters, why was no one hurt? Even the sergeant who ran through sniper fire with a small team to retrieve the Culp brothers and other dead or injured white victims on 62nd Street made it out without a scratch. A man pointed a shotgun at him from close range, but intentionally shot the dome light of his police cruiser instead. They harassed the hell out of us. Major Clarence Dixon, a black officer who headed the Miami Police Department's community relations program, concluded, but I don't think the main objective of this riot was to retaliate against the police. If it was, they could have picked us off at random any time they wanted to.
The participants in the rebellion, as always, did not fare as well. Within a few hours of the Culp brothers' assault on the 17th, police had shot and killed four black men, including a 43-year-old father of five, two young men in their early 20s, and a 17-year-old high school student. The second day of the rebellion, Miami police shot and killed 39-year-old Haitian minister Lafontant Bienamé as he was driving with his 13-year-old son. At the same time, white civilians decided to take the law into their own hands. White Miamians erected a burning cross in a black neighborhood. Others torched a black-owned grocery store in an integrated area. Still others simply wanted to kill black people. On Sunday afternoon, as 14-year-old Andre Dawson went to find his sister, who had disobeyed their mother's warning to stay inside, a blue pickup truck raced down 83rd Street and the Larchmont Gardens housing project. Three shots rang out, two of them hitting Dawson in the head and killing him instantly. The white vigilantes in the truck also murdered 44-year-old Eugene Brown as he waited for his wife and two children to purchase groceries at the Utotem store. A 35-year-old man was shot in the back when white men started firing at a black crowd on 103rd Street and 13th Avenue. By Monday, May 19th, with more than 3,000 National Guardsmen and police from all 27 incorporated towns and cities in Dade counties stationed throughout the zone of violence, the rebellion came to an end. Ten black people had been killed, in addition to the eight whites who had been murdered. With the crisis in Miami making the headlines of major media outlets and on the nightly news, Jimmy Carter responded hesitantly. His campaign for a second presidential term against challenger Ronald Reagan was tightening, and Carter needed black votes if he was to win the election in November. He wanted his administration to appear as though it was acting decisively in reaction to black Miamians' grievances, without alienating conservative white voters, whom Carter was courting with pledges to cut domestic spending and by generally laying low on civil rights issues. The president dispatched Attorney General Benjamin Civiletti to Miami before the rebellion ended. To great fanfare, Civiletti announced on Monday, May 19th, that the Department of Justice would launch a sweeping investigation into 13 allegations of police brutality in Dade County, from the McDuffie killing to the four black men who had been shot by police during the rebellion. There is a great perception of injustice, which has brought a sense of frustration and rage, Civiletti said at his press conference, presenting racism as a belief held by black people rather than a practice and structural fact, much like the commissions that investigated the rebellions of the late 1960s and early 1970s. We hope no one feels so outraged and revengeful that they will not give the United States government a chance to investigate the death of Arthur McDuffie. Of course, the Justice Department had not investigated the McDuffie case back in December 1979, when it first became clear that a cabal of at least five police officers had covered up the fact that they beat a black man to death with their fists, their feet, and with heavy flashlights following a traffic violation. But to black residents, it was better that federal oversight come late than never. The gesture gave hope to many that the federal government would secure a just outcome. In the first act of its crusade against police brutality in Miami, 
the Department of Justice punished the policemen who bravely exposed the cover-up. When the federal grand jury reviewed the McDuffie case, it indicted only one officer, Charles Viverka, who had admitted his role in the killing and testified against the defendants at trial. I can't see any cop going forth and telling the truth after this, Viverka said, regarding the federal charges against him. If the goal was to end police violence and encourage transparency and accountability, as Civiletti and the Carter administration claimed, the decision to prosecute the whistleblower was perhaps not the most effective strategy. After Viverka was acquitted, he offered to work with federal prosecutors if they chose to bring charges against the other officers involved. The Justice Department ultimately declined to pursue the case any further. Carter did not visit Miami until three weeks after the fires had been put out. The president arrived on June 9th, the day of a previously scheduled speech at a conference in Miami Beach. During Carter's brief stay, which he believed would show leadership and concern for the people of the city, he met with a small group of prominent businessmen, with Mayor Foray and other local authorities, as well as with a handful of carefully selected black leaders at the James E. Scott Community Center in Liberty City. Black Miamians looked forward to the president's arrival, hoping he would announce a major relief package. Carter brought no such news. Instead, he scolded the city officials and black leaders for not presenting a comprehensive recovery plan, although none of the local representatives were informed the president anticipated one and told them they could not expect the federal government to bail the city out. After a 90-minute discussion, Carter stepped back into his limousine. People threw rocks and bottles at the motorcade as it pulled away. Some mocked the president, who had grown up on and owned a peanut farm, by stumping on peanuts. The federal government did eventually send some relief— it offered small business loans, including a total of $40 million for the rebellion-torn area. But in the year after the uprising, just over half of that money had been distributed, 90% of which went to white, Cuban, and Latin American business owners, most of whom reopened their businesses outside black neighborhoods. In addition to the small business loans, the Carter administration increased support for the Comprehensive Employment and Training Act in Miami— a program that trained unemployed, low-income young people. The federal government allocated $6 million to this remnant of the war on poverty, but the youths who participated never found work. When Ronald Reagan took office, his administration moved to terminate the training program and slashed the funding allocation for Miami's post-rebellion relief. Without a robust federal intervention in the service of justice or reconstruction, Black residents in Liberty City and Overtown grew ever more isolated. After the rebellion, with 3,000 fewer jobs in the area and most stores burnt out, and with weeds sprouting up amid the rubble, residents were often forced to venture some 30 blocks to buy a pound of hamburger meat, pay bills, or cash welfare checks. Employers were even more hesitant to hire black workers. Overall, the city had difficulty attracting new businesses. Two years after the unrest, 70% of young Liberty City residents were reportedly out of work. In these austere conditions, further rebellions in Miami were inevitable, as was the continued killing of black men by police. In December 1982, 
Officer Luis Alvarez took a trainee into a video arcade in Overtown, one of the few supposedly safe places for young people in the community to go in the evenings. Alvarez, who joined the force the summer of the previous year, had, among other complaints, already been the subject of five internal investigations for excessive use of force. The aggressive officer and the rookie approached 18-year-old Neville Johnson Jr. as he was playing an arcade game, and Alvarez shot the young man in the head at point-blank range. Having initially said the shooting was an accident, Alvarez later claimed Johnson was reaching for a weapon— Johnson was later discovered with a pistol in his pocket. As news of the killing traveled through Overtown, residents took to the streets, firing guns, smashing windows, and plundering stores. Although the rebellion was far less extensive than the eruption in 1980, several hundred people participated over two nights, during which a 17-year-old black high school student, Alonzo Singleton, was fatally shot eight times by police for allegedly looting. Johnson and Singleton were killed amid a period of intense police violence in Miami that was directed at black men. In October 1982, 58-year-old Ernest Kirkland and 30-year-old Anthony Nelson were killed in two separate incidents. The two officers who shot them were eventually acquitted by all-white juries. In March 1983, Metro Officer Robert Koenig fatally shot 21-year-old Donald Harp while the latter was sitting in the passenger seat of a car that had just been involved in a hit-and-run accident. When officers tried to remove Harp from the vehicle, Koenig claimed Harp made a sudden movement with his left hand. I thought he was going to kill me. Koenig testified at his trial, but the autopsy proved otherwise— Harp was highly intoxicated at the time of his death, and the young man did not pose a threat to Koenig when he fired at close range. The evidence was strong enough to secure a rare outcome, an all-white jury found Koenig guilty of manslaughter. Less surprising was that an all-white jury found Alvarez not guilty in March 1984, sparking sporadic rock and bottle throwing, looting, and firebombing in Liberty City, Overtown, and Coconut Grove. As Ronald Reagan settled into office in 1981, public service announcements began to air on Miami radio stations that served large black audiences. The messages encouraged listeners to refrain from making sudden moves, of the kind that cost Donald Harp his life, and to please avoid arguments during interactions with police officers. When you see a flashing light, pull over to the side of the road the first chance you get and do nothing, the broadcast instructed. Answer precisely and only what you are asked. To some, the announcements seemed to hold the fallen responsible for their own deaths, when the real problems were policing practices and systemic racism. The message was clear enough at least to those for whom it was intended, the police wouldn't change, and the legal system would continue to sanction their lethal behavior. It was up to black residents themselves to ensure their safety and livelihood through compliance. To do otherwise was to vastly increase the chances of becoming the latest police victim. And yet compliance did not always offer an effective shield against law enforcement officers with a license to kill. 
On Martin Luther King Jr. Day in 1989, a Colombian-born officer, 30-year-old William Lozano, fatally shot 23-year-old black motorcyclist Clement Lloyd with a 9mm semi-automatic Glock while Lloyd was driving. Lloyd's passenger, 24-year-old Alan Blanchard, died of head injuries from the resulting crash. Once again, hundreds of Overtown residents took to the streets, throwing rocks and burning buildings as heavily armed police attempted to quell the unrest with tear gas and shotguns. The rebellion lasted for four days. Lozano's trial in the fall of 1989 generated substantial press coverage, and local authorities anticipated a repeat of the McDuffie Rebellion. Miami Chief of Police Perry Anderson lobbied to delay the announcement of the verdict in order to allow the department time to mobilize off-duty officers and armored vehicles. In preparedness for the possibility of civil disturbance, the police department had purchased 700 gas masks and other riot essentials with $72,000 in emergency funds from the city. Lozano was convicted of manslaughter in 1990 and given the minimum sentence of seven years. An appeals court overturned the decision in 1991 on the grounds that the Miami jury found Lozano guilty because they feared an acquittal would ignite a riot. There was no major reaction to the decision made by the appeals court, and there has not been a rebellion in Miami on the scale of the 1989 uprising since— nor has there been anything quite like the murder of Jeffrey Culp and the brutal killings of other white civilians during a moment of black collective violence. Similar to Arthur McDuffie, Jeffrey Culp had been the target of lethal violence due to his skin color. One killing was sanctioned by the state, the other was committed by an oppressed community. Both were products, in different ways, of a criminal justice system fundamentally opposed to fairness and justice for black Americans. Chapter 9 The Proposal A peace movement took hold in Los Angeles during the most deadly and destructive rebellion in American history. As in Miami over a decade earlier, the uprising was a reaction to systematic injustice rather than a direct response to police violence. The acquittal of four police officers for the March 1991 beating of 25-year-old black motorcyclist Rodney King, a two-minute assault captured on video and watched by millions of Americans on the nightly news, set off a rebellion that lasted for five days involved the deployment of 10,072 National Guardsmen and 2,000 federal troops, and caused an unprecedented $1 billion, just under $2 billion today, in property damage. Over 50 people died, surpassing Detroit's grim record of 43. Yet in the Watts section of the city, where in 1965 stores had burned, helicopters had hovered, and police and National Guardsmen had killed dozens of black residents, in 1992, warring crip and blood gangs understood the rebellion not as a moment of wanton destruction, but as an opportunity to transform themselves and their community. By moving to end the violence, the gangs hoped to win political influence and to control scarce resources on their own terms. 
The bounty hunter bloods, Grape Street Crips, Hacienda Village Piru's bloods, and the P.J. Watts Crips had intermittently discussed a ceasefire in the years leading up to the rebellion. But it took a series of discreet meetings supported by the Amer I Can program before any of the Crips and Bloods involved were prepared to make meaningful steps toward peace. Run by the former NFL star Jim Brown, Amer I Can offered urban life management skills classes based on the principles of responsibility and self-determination. Most of the young men in their 20s who would organize the truce in 1992 had participated in the program and had often met in Brown's living room. The Crips and Bloods and Watts had been at war with each other and with police in Southern California for three decades. In Los Angeles and other major cities, collective violence in the 1960s and early 1970s was directed against external state forces— most often the police, who represented the front line of government authority in segregated urban communities. After the rebellions of that era were repressed by an increase in uniformed presence on the streets and by mass incarceration, an internal form of collective violence surfaced. With few opportunities for formal employment, even within the lowest levels of the service sector, Young black men began to form groups, commonly referred to as gangs, to claim and guard territory, protect themselves, and keep neighborhoods safe from outsiders. Gang members defaced businesses, schools, parks, churches, and public walls with graffiti. By force or theft, they acquired sneakers, leather jackets, and cash, establishing protection rackets to extort money from local businesses— and they clashed with one another, throwing Molotov cocktails, attacking rivals with fists and switchblades, and firing cheap Saturday night special handguns. In the early 1970s, the Black Panthers and other radical organizations were no longer seen to pose a major threat, and law enforcement agencies at all levels started to concentrate on gangs, the new public enemy number one. Beginning in 1972, the county sheriff's departments received federal funding to create a special street gang detail squad to combat the groups. In 1973, the Los Angeles Police Department formed the Total Resources Against Street Hoodlums Unit, otherwise known by its acronym, TRASH. As fears of black youth gangs grew, so did gang enforcement. And as gang enforcement expanded, so too did the gangs themselves, which needed increasing numbers of recruits in their push for self-protection amid the crackdowns, and in order to sustain their flourishing informal economy. Whereas in 1972, only 18 known and active gangs existed in South Central, Compton, and Inglewood, by 1978, that number had more than doubled— and with the expansion of gangs has come the expansion of violence and killing. From 1980 to the present, black men have constituted half of all America's homicide victims, the vast majority of whom were killed by other black men. By the time Ronald Reagan officially launched the war on drugs in 1984, gang members carried Uzis, MAC-10 submachine guns, and semi-automatic rifles to enforce contracts in the underground economy. The most tragic consequence of this arsenal was the prevalence of drive-by shootings, which frequently resulted in the deaths of innocent bystanders and hastened an increasingly aggressive police response. 
1992, the reported number of gang-related homicides in L.A. County peaked at 803, representing a 77% increase over the 1988 figure. Between 1987 and 1992, the state of California expanded its spending on policing and incarceration by 70%. By conservative estimates, a quarter of black youth in South Central had been arrested at some point in the years leading up to the rebellion. By the spring of 1992, it seemed that nearly two decades of gang control measures had failed under the leadership of Mayor Tom Bradley, who had been elected in 1973 as one of the first black mayors of a major U.S. city, and who served in that position until 1993. As with the rebellions of the late 1960s and early 1970s, more enforcement seemed to only precipitate more violence in response— but the consequences for low-income black communities were now more dire. These communities in L.A. and other cities were under attack, caught in a war among rival gangs and between gangs and the police. Rising crime and mistrust within communities themselves, exacerbated by federal policies, are factors that generally made rebellion less frequent in the last decades of the 20th century and into the 2010s. As President Ronald Reagan oversaw the war on drugs in the 1980s, he simultaneously supported the removal of half a million families from welfare rolls, one million Americans from food stamps, and 2.6 million previously eligible children from school lunch programs. At the same time, violent crime increased alongside the zero-tolerance policing of the drug war and mandatory minimum sentencing provisions— Together, these factors rendered mass incarceration a foregone conclusion. The higher probability of getting harmed or shot led parents in vulnerable areas to call their children home after school. The higher likelihood of getting robbed led grandparents to install additional deadbolts and chains on their doors. The prospect of retaliation led people to be careful about the clothing they wore and kept victims from talking openly with police, whom they probably didn't trust anyway. People learned to comply with officers during routine encounters, to keep both hands on the steering wheel, to answer questions politely, in order to stay alive. They armed themselves in case they had to shoot their neighbor. Yet as the 1992 rebellion raged and the city burned, members of the Crips and the Bloods and Watts set out to bring the internal warfare to an end and to face a common external enemy— systemic racism embodied most immediately by the police as a united front. Formal truce talks started three days before the rebellion broke out. On April 26, 1992, a dozen Grape Street Crips, led by two Can participants, 25-year-old Daoud Shirils and his 23-year-old brother Akila, drove the two miles south from the Jordan Downs housing project to Imperial Courts, where their P.J. Cripps rivals lived. The two groups made a peace pact and partied together afterward, marking the end of two decades of violence and fear. On April 28th, the two Crip groups approached the bounty hunter bloods of Nickerson Gardens and struck another truce, shaking hands with former enemies— restoring friendships torn apart by the gang wars, forgiving one another. We started celebrating. The peace treaty is on. The peace treaty is on, remembered Akilah Sherrills. It was an unbelievable release. 
Los Angeles blew up the next day, Wednesday, April 29, 1992. Roughly 10 minutes after it was announced that the four officers who brutalized Rodney King had walked free, crowds gathered at the Payless Liquor and Deli on Florence Avenue in South Central. The police started making arrests, prompting more people to join in to protest the police. Some went to LAPD headquarters, smashing windows and chanting, No justice, no peace. Others looted stores at the intersection of Florence and Normandy or attacked motorists. Most of the victims of the random attacks were Latin American or Korean, but a news helicopter captured the beating of white truck driver Reginald Denny by a group of black men, and this incident presented as the counterpart to the Rodney King video, became the iconic image of the rebellion. When the sun went down, the mass looting and arson began. Across Los Angeles County, from the San Fernando Valley to Long Beach, stores were ransacked and burned, ultimately causing damage to more than 1,000 buildings and leaving more than 2,000 people injured, both participants and bystanders. Although non-black-owned businesses were hit in South Los Angeles, much of the violence targeted the immigrant communities of Koreatown and Pico Union. Tensions between black and Korean residents had increased since mid-March the year before, when two weeks after Rodney King's assault, black ninth-grader Latasha Harlins was fatally shot by a Korean store owner over a $1.79 bottle of orange juice. Harlins's killer, Soon Ja Du, received probation, community service, and a $500 fine after facing charges of voluntary manslaughter. In April 1992, the Rodney King verdict was the national story, but Harlins was on the participants' minds. Rodney King, shit, my homies be beat like dogs by the police every day, a member of the Bloods explained. This riot is about all the homeboys murdered by the police about the little sister killed by the Koreans, about 27 years of oppression, he said, invoking the 1965 Watts Rebellion as an origin point. Rodney King was just the trigger. In stark contrast to most prior rebellions, the collective violence in Los Angeles was multiracial and multiethnic. Just over half of those arrested were of Central and South American descent, Overall, this demographic made up roughly 40% of the city's total population, and many within it linked the Rodney King case to the police brutality they faced, too. In August 1991, five months after the King video circulated around the world, LAPD officers and sheriff's deputies gunned down two young Latino teenagers in separate incidents, sparking a wave of protests in East L.A. Fuck the police. They diss us just as much as the blacks. A Salvadorian teenager announced to reporters outside two looted stores in Koreatown during the 1992 rebellion. While many Latin American participants spoke of a shared struggle when they took to the streets, the media mostly depicted them as illegal aliens who exploited black protest for their own personal gain, conjuring a racist stereotype that obscured the scale of police violence in black and brown communities and, by extension, their legitimate political grievances. On Friday, May 1st, the third night of unrest, President George H.W. Bush addressed the nation, just as Lyndon Johnson had during the Detroit Rebellion in 1967. Bush referred to the King beating as revolting and said that he and Barbara Bush were stunned by the verdict. 
Many white Americans shared the first couple's reaction to the sight of officers pummeling King some fifty times with weighted batons and shooting him with their tasers. This was the first viral video of police brutality, exposing white Americans to state violence in black Los Angeles and black America. Bush was not prepared to offer a critique of police brutality or the justice system, but he admitted it was hard to understand how the verdict could possibly square with the video. Professing to be disturbed by the King verdict, Bush also assured the American people he would use whatever force is necessary to restore order. His administration sent 2,000 riot-trained federal officers to Los Angeles and placed the 3,000 National Guard troops already stationed there under federal command. Attorney General William Barr invoked the Insurrection Act to quickly organize the federal force, which consisted of FBI and Border Patrol agents, special SWAT teams, U.S. Marshals, and prison riot squads, in addition to thousands of Marines and Army soldiers, all of whom were stationed in the city for 10 days. In total, more than 20,000 law enforcement officers and soldiers cooperated to arrest an incredible 16,291 people and put down the rebellion. The possibility that the riot in Los Angeles was a political act did not factor into Bush's analysis. What we saw last night and the night before in Los Angeles is not about civil rights, the president told the nation. It's not about the great cause of equality that all Americans must uphold. It's not a message of protest. It's been the brutality of a mob, pure and simple. The Bush administration explicitly linked the mob to gang violence. The president wanted to know what the violence was about, Barr later remembered. I told him that there were a lot of street gangs involved, and this was primarily centered on street gang activity, Crips-type gangs. In the 1960s and 1970s, authorities had blamed communists, outside agitators, and militants for the destruction. Now Barr and other authorities held gangs and undocumented immigrants responsible, viewing the violence as a problem endemic to those groups. Federal, state, and local officials also saw the chaos as an opportunity to advance repressive campaigns against the gangs and illegal aliens— a number of aliens have come into this area and are involved in crime, Chief of Police Daryl Gates claimed in an interview. They were participating in this riot in a very, very significant way. During the rebellion, police officers would stop possible gang members or undocumented migrants without cause other than to assess their status. Those found to be gang members were added to police and FBI databases, while those determined to be illegal were prosecuted by Immigration and Naturalization Services, also called the INS, and the Border Patrol, which had dispatched 400 agents to Los Angeles. Some INS officers went to the county jail to identify undocumented people and haul them away. The INS's campaign continued through June and led to the deportation of more than 1,000 Mexican, Guatemalan, and Honduran migrants. Arrest and deportation became yet another tactic government authorities used to manage the violence resulting from unequal socioeconomic conditions and racial oppression. And as in every prior rebellion, a harsh response led more people to rebel. It was, in a sense, the antithesis of the plan the Crips and the Bloods and Watts proposed for South Central.
When the rebellion started at Florence and Normandy, Graffiti and Watts already announced the truce agreed to the day before. The uprising had the effect of cementing it. Unity parties in imperial courts and Nickerson Gardens went on as the surrounding areas burned. On May 3rd, the day before the rebellion ended, the Piru's Bloods and the Hacienda Village Housing Project entered the accord, meaning that there would be peace throughout Watts going forward. Even during the rebellion, the truce made a difference. Compared to South and East L.A., property damage in the area was light. Shootings continued among gangs in other neighborhoods, but police alone were responsible for the three deaths in Watts. There had been prior attempts to negotiate a ceasefire, but the 1992 truce succeeded because it was the first initiated by Crips and Bloods themselves. In 1972, the year black youth gangs started making headlines in the Los Angeles Times— the city's Commission on Human Relations sponsored a day-long seminar at the L.A. Convention Center for Gang Members from South Central and the segregated black city of Compton. The boys and young men believed that black people should have more control over their own community and agreed to come together in unity to organize a broader truce if they were provided with jobs, better schools, and better recreational facilities. These investments never materialized, and so the young people did not hold up their end of the bargain either. The official response to the gang problem was draconian. New anti-gang policing measures revolved around surveillance, violence, and incarceration. In 1973, the Los Angeles Police Department had established its trash unit to combat gang violence in black and brown neighborhoods. After complaints about the acronym, it was changed to CRASH for Community Resources Against Street Hoodlums, more moderate in name only, Crash adopted a strategy of total suppression, which in practice meant the monitoring and arrest of residents who fit the profile of a gang member, and often the violation of their civil rights in the process. Crash officers were known for picking up gang suspects and dropping them off in enemy territory in order to provoke violence and eliminate the people they were otherwise supposed to serve and protect. Under the leadership of Daryl Gates, who served as the LAPD chief of police from 1978 until he was forced out after the 1992 rebellion, the department prosecuted a vigorous war on drugs and gangs that was deeply racist in its premise and methods. In a May 1982 interview with the Los Angeles Times, Gates famously remarked on the use of chokeholds by police— we may be finding that in some blacks, when it is applied, the veins or arteries do not open up as fast as they do in normal people. This and other racist beliefs were widely held throughout the LAPD. Some officers informally referred to black-on-black -black homicide cases as NHI, for no human involved. Amid the police war on abnormal and inhuman people of color between 1980 and 1990, the number of misconduct charges nearly doubled, as did the number of reported gang killings. Beginning in the spring of 1987, more than a thousand LAPD officers would sporadically swoop into South Central to carry out mass arrests as part of a recurring campaign called Operation Hammer. The purpose of the program, as Gates explained, was to make life miserable for gang members. 
Over the decades remaining years, more than 50,000 people, most of them black, were interrogated and detained for parking fines, traffic citations, curfew violations, outstanding warrants, and gang-related behaviors. Officers exhibited gang-related behaviors themselves. In one particularly violent raid on two apartment buildings, during which police ransacked homes, tore up family photos, smashed toilets, and poured bleach on residents' clothes, officers tagged the community with their own graffiti. LAPD rules, they wrote, threatening, Roland 30s die. Operation Hammer created or extended criminal records for significant numbers of Los Angeles residents. Only 10% of the people arrested during the sweeps ended up facing criminal charges, but police classified the majority of those they arrested as gang members and entered them into the computerized database, which eventually had over 100,000 names. At the time of the 1992 rebellion, 47% of black men and teenagers in Los Angeles were classified by law enforcement authorities as gang members. Names appeared in the database multiple times, leading to a distortion of the gang problem. During the summer of 1988, in one of the largest sweeps conducted under the banner of Operation Hammer, 15 different blood and crip sets from the Watts, Compton, Crenshaw, and South Los Angeles neighborhoods came together for a series of peace summits. The gatherings had been organized by Reverend Charles Mims, Jr., the 50-year-old pastor of the Tabernacle of Faith Baptist Church in Watts. Initially, Mims brought rival factions to hotels in the neutral areas of Carson and Long Beach for several days of discussion. The participants would hash out past incidents of violence, each side viewing the other with suspicion and expressing ambivalence about whether a ceasefire could be effectively enforced. Yet by late October, 50 Bloods and Crips members appeared on the steps of Los Angeles City Hall, pledging to the gathered press that they would put down their weapons and act as silent warriors to prevent gang killings. Moving forward, they intended to serve as positive role models for our younger brothers and sisters. The silent warriors linked disarmament to community development. We plan to put our words into action by working in our neighborhoods and removing graffiti, cutting lawns, and protecting senior citizens to put pride back into the areas where we live, explained truce activist Twilight Bay. The silent warriors were too few in number to maintain a broader armistice, but the summit laid a foundation for the 1992 agreement. Another foundation, this one unexpected and unplanned, came in the form of the Los Angeles Rebellion itself. As residents and gang members understood, the mass violence and arson had the effect of fostering a sense of solidarity and unity among previously warring neighborhoods. We are coming together because we are black, said a 23-year-old who identified himself simply as Anthony. We are tired of being divided. The truce meant members would no longer have to live under the constant fear of getting shot or with the belief that it was necessary to shoot someone themselves. They would not have to face the prospect of being sent to a faraway prison for decades, if not forever. The rebellion was a moment when internal violence was set aside in favor of fighting an external threat. Even when the violence stopped, the focus on the police and the larger system remained. As the truce came into effect, organizers planned programs in the Watts community to promote it. 
Over the weekend of May 16th and 17th, as Governor Pete Wilson withdrew the remaining 3,000 National Guardsmen from Los Angeles, the Crips and Bloods sponsored a Saturday Unity Picnic and a Sunday Family Event, inviting the entire community to come out for a peaceful day of food and recreation. More than 5,000 people showed up, men and women from both sides of the war, as well as people who were not involved in it except as bystanders. People played football and danced together. Congresswoman Maxine Waters made an appearance, applauding the peace agreement and vowing to create more jobs in South L.A. and Watts. Organizers went beyond parties, picnics, and speeches, and the knowledge that the problems went deeper than violence— the larger goal was to restore Watts, with the support of local organizations, including the Coalition Against Police Abuse, also called CAPA, and Community Youth Gang Services. We will clean up our community from graffiti and trash and prove to media, police, and everyone else that we are not outcast just out to do wrong. A flyer promoting one of the new initiatives proclaimed, Community Youth Gang Services helped launch training programs that were intended to equip gang members to compete for jobs. CAPA established an Off the Roaches program, a riff on the Black Panthers, Off the Pigs slogan, to train and employ young people at up to $200 a day to kill cockroaches in the community with non-toxic, environmentally safe chemicals, as well as a speaker's bureau to connect the Crips and Bloods with organizations across the country so that the gang members could share their experiences and drum up wider support for the truce. The gang involved young people who worked with CAPA increasingly recognized the need to come together rather than fight each other. In the words of former Black Panther and CAPA chairperson Michael Zinzun, and to instead fight police abuse. Within two weeks of the rebellion, walls that were once covered with gang tags were painted over and discussions about how to build political and economic power were underway. Those who struck the truce understood that its success depended on whether the drug and black market opportunities that lured people into gangs could be replaced with jobs in the formal economy. The gangbangers that are in the community, that are slinging drugs, put an economic plan together, and then they'll quit selling drugs, said P.J. Cripp, Tony Bogard, a key figure in the peace negotiations. You have to substitute something. Reconstruction would have been necessary in the minds of those pushing for it, even if the city was not undergoing the largest rebellion in American history. Bogard and other organizers took the rebellion as an opportunity to push the city for a massive investment in health care, education, and employment, and they called for residents themselves to have a say in how it was apportioned. Local authorities had other ideas in mind. On May 2nd, the day President Bush declared Los Angeles a disaster area, Mayor Bradley announced the formation of Rebuild L.A., entrusting the 54-year-old businessman Peter Uberoth, a resident of Orange County, with directing the program. Uberoth had shared the 1984 Olympic Committee and was named Times Man of the Year for overseeing the first privately funded Olympics, which had taken place that year in L.A., for many black and brown residents, the Olympic Games had not been a cause for celebration. On the contrary, they marked the beginning of a new level of police surveillance and violence. 
and a precursor to Operation Hammer, Uberoth, Bradley, and other officials supported Chief Gates in expanding gang sweeps and patrolling targeted communities, a strategy that resembled a military occupation. Many of the military-grade weapons the city purchased from the federal government and with federal funds to control crime during the Olympics, machine guns, infrared surveillance equipment, and a V-100 armored vehicle that had been used in Vietnam became permanent features of policing in Los Angeles. In mid-May 1992, as Uberoth vetted candidates for the Rebuild LA board, Members of the Crips and the Bloods drafted a comprehensive proposal for a $3.728 billion investment into the community that would accompany the end of the internal warfare. The 10-page document became known for its memorable closing line, Give us the hammer and the nails. We will rebuild the city. The majority of the funds, or about $2 billion, would be spent on L.A.'s facelift, building new community centers and recreation facilities to replace burned and abandoned structures, erecting more streetlights, we want a well-lit neighborhood, properly maintaining the landscape, new trees will be planted to increase the beauty of our neighborhoods, and improving trash removal and pest control. The proposal also called for universal health care and the construction of new hospitals, health care centers, and dental clinics, for an end to welfare through new jobs for able-bodied workers and for free daycare for single parents. There was another request, too. $700 million for the complete transformation of the Los Angeles Unified School District the funds would be used for the renovation of derelict public schools, including remodeling and repainting deteriorating buildings and upgrading bathrooms to make them more modern. Students would have access to computers, supplies, and up-to-date textbooks, and enough copies so the books would no longer need to be shared. Some of the money earmarked for schools would go toward college preparatory courses for teens from South Central— who would now experience a curriculum similar to non-economically deprived areas, and mandatory after-school tutoring for students with poor grades. Another portion of the money would take the form of federally funded bonds for high-performing students to help them attend college. The gang members also asked for an end to the well-intentioned liberal practice of forced busing. People no longer wanted their kids to be shipped off to schools outside of their communities, they instead wanted significant investments in their own schools. The Crips and Bloods also no longer wished to be policed by a gang of outsiders. The Los Angeles communities are demanding that they are policed and patrolled by individuals who live in the community and the commanding officers be 10-year residents of the community in which they serve. Their proposal explained, putting forward residency requirements as a straightforward step to improve police-community relations. To promote community oversight of policing, former gang members would have a role in assisting the protection of the neighborhoods through what the drafters conceived as a buddy system. Former gang members would accompany officers during every encounter in what would have essentially represented the institutionalization of the Black Panthers' community alert patrol from the 1960s and 1970s. The community members involved in the program would undergo police training and comply with all of the laws instituted by our established authorities. They would be issued uniforms but not guns. 
Instead, each buddy patrol will be supplied with a video camera and will tape each event and the officers handling the police matter. The idea was that if an officer was knowingly filmed, he or she would be less likely to engage in brutality or lawlessness. The premise behind the police body cameras that would become relatively common across the country in the 21st century. The drafters of the proposal recognized that change needed to come from both the community and the authorities. In order to build a vibrant, formal economy in place of the existing underground economy in communities with high rates of unemployment and underemployment, the proposal urged federal and state authorities to make loans available to minority entrepreneurs interested in doing business in these deprived areas— in other words, to give illicit organizations an opportunity to establish legitimate businesses. Entrepreneurs who received these loans would be required to hire 90% of their workforce from within the community. In return for these demands, the proposal promised, the Blood-slash-Crips organization will request the drug lords of Los Angeles to stop drug traffic and get them to use the money constructively. The drafters of the proposal gave authorities 72 hours to commit their support in writing, 30 days to begin implementation, and four years to construct three new hospitals and 40 health care clinics, as well as to renovate the schools. Over the summer of 1992, the organizers of the truce also worked to formalize the verbal peace agreements in an official document— Anthony Perry, a 30-year-old organizer and a Marikan member, went to the Von Klein-Smith Center for International and Public Affairs at the University of Southern California after being turned away from the UCLA library to look through old United Nations treaties for inspiration. The document he found most useful was the 1949 Armistice Agreement between Egypt and Israel, which had been mediated by civil rights leader and South Central native Ralph Bunch, Perry later explained that he knew from the Bible and Quran that the Jews and Arabs were Semitic. They were related, both children of Abraham. It was tribal bloodletting. He translated the document into street terms on his yellow legal pad. The establishment of a ceasefire between the armed gangs of all parties is accepted as a necessary step toward the renewal of peace in Watts, California, his draft treaty stated. It modified a crucial line in the Egypt-Israel Treaty. No element of land, sea, or air military or paramilitary forces of either parties shall commit any warlike or hostile act against the military or paramilitary forces of the other party. As follows, no element of the land, drive-by shootings, and random slayings of any organization shall commit any warlike or hostile act against the other parties or against civilians under the influences of that gang. The final, complete treaty included a code of ethics authored by Dawood Sherrills, one of the leaders who forged the truce. I accept the duty to honor, uphold, and defend the spirit of the red, blue, and purple— Cheryl's preamble read, referring to the colors of the Watts gangs, to teach the black family its legacy and protract its struggle for freedom and justice. Aligning the truce with the civil rights and black power movements, the code encouraged gang members to register to vote and to pool their investments to sponsor cultural events, establish a food bank, and provide hardship funds to families in need. 
it prohibited the use of the N-word and B-word, as well as who-riding or throwing up gang signs. Well before it was formalized, the truce had a measurable impact in reducing violence that went beyond the five days of rebellion, when one-time rivals had had more reason to unite. For years, black male gunshot victims had filled the emergency room at Martin Luther King Jr. Community Hospital near Nickerson Gardens and Imperial Courts on weekends. The U.S. military trained surgeons at the site in order to prepare them for combat duty. But in the first weekend after the rebellion and the truce, doctors did not operate on a single black male with gunshot wounds. Usually there's an onslaught of black victims, said Kelvin Spears, an emergency room physician at the hospital. In May and June, only four people were killed, down from 22 during the same period in 1991. Drive-by shootings fell by nearly 50% from 1991 to 1992, and gang-related homicides by 62%. Almost overnight, Watts enjoyed a new kind of simple, straightforward freedom, with residents now trusting each other more. Children could play in their front yards without their parents worrying that they would be caught in the crossfire. Now it's quiet, peaceful, said Watts residents Keisha Simmons. You can take a walk, water your grass. You don't have to worry about anything. People no longer felt constrained in choosing which colors to wear or which neighborhoods to visit. As one resident put it, the truce gave those in Watts a better chance to live like people. In August, the Ashley Grisby Mortuary, the only funeral home in Watts, had not buried any gang members, previously a staple of the business's revenue, since early May. Most in the community saw law enforcement as the biggest challenge to the endurance of the truce. I don't have to worry about the gangs, said a former gang member named Duke at a press conference. I have to worry about the police. The LAPD had maintained their existing tactics, despite the drop-off in violence. The police had even seen the parties celebrating the truce as an opportunity to arrest large groups of people— in some cases in the hopes of causing a violent reaction. In Nickerson Gardens, Monster, a 27-year-old member of the Bounty Hunters, claimed that police come in here wearing blue rags on their heads like they're crips. They know we're bloods, man. Half this is provoked by the cops. Helicopters continued to hover over Nickerson Gardens, Imperial Courts, and other areas of concentrated poverty— shining searchlights at all hours to uncover potential criminals or anyone who fit the description. Yet the Crips and Bloods who had signed on to the peace agreement remained committed to unity. More police are patrolling because they cannot believe that Bloods and Crips are hanging together. A 26-year-old named Kenneth, who had been a gang member since his teenage years, assumed. They say things to try to push us but we know that they are trying to divide us and make us do something that will cause bloodshed. We ain't even sweating them, though. Our whole thing is to get organized and to love one another. The truce movement, with young people working together to clean up the community and increase public safety while demanding jobs and justice from the authorities, was puzzling to law enforcement, who viewed the decline in violence in Watts and South L.A. with cynicism. Time will tell whether or not we are dealing with a real situation where they definitely want to return to society, 
said Detective Bob Jackson, one of the LAPD's gang experts. Sergeant Wes McBride admitted to a reporter, To be quite honest with you, we just don't know why black gangs are not killing each other. McBride and others concluded that the sole purpose of the truce was to unify against the police. I'm concerned as to the true motives of the gang members as to why they would make peace, McBride said in a separate interview. Is it so they can better fight with us, so they can better deal dope, or so they can better be constructive in their neighborhoods? That would be the last item I would choose, because gang members have a thug mentality. I'm very suspicious of any peace pact. I suspect it won't last long because of this intense hatred they have for each other. McBride viewed the gang members as inherently violent, governed by a criminal mentality, and therefore irredeemable. From this position, one shared by officials from McBride and other officers to the U.S. Attorney General, policing, surveillance, and incarceration represented the only acceptable strategy toward poor black communities. The LAPD claimed to have intelligence from informants that the truce movement promoted violence against the police. Even though officers allowed that just as many informants told them otherwise, they embraced the war-on-police narrative. Officials cited a gang-produced flyer as evidence. It allegedly said, Open season on LAPD. To all Crips and Bloods, let's unite, and let it be a black thing for the little black girl and the homie Rodney King. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. If LAPD hurt a black, we'll kill two. Pow, pow, pow. Crips and Bloods members said the flyer was fabricated by authorities, and the style of COINTELPRO practices during the 1960s and 1970s, when FBI agents spread fake propaganda to undercut popular support for the Panthers and other black power organizations, and to justify the raids, surveillance, shootings, and other repressive measures unleashed on the movement. In L.A. in 1992, the police needed to keep the gang war alive— if there was peace in the community and no need for the war on gangs that had shaped policing strategies in Los Angeles for nearly a decade, what would police do? In the face of testimony from residents about how the truce had improved their lives, LAPD officials insisted that black people in South, Central, and Watts still lived in fear, and they moved to increase police patrols. It's not as if the truce means that the gang members have found God or suddenly seen the light. South Bureau homicide detective Jerry Johnson argued, They are just as violent, but they have shifted their activities away from each other and toward the community. Johnson asserted, pointing out that drug deals, robberies, and other street crimes had not entirely vanished. The LAPD deployed a large crime suppression task force to aggressively patrol gang neighborhoods. Citing a party at Jordan Downs where residents started throwing rocks and bottles when police showed up, reportedly causing injuries to 30 officers, a police memo called for the transfer of 40 officers from the west side in the San Fernando Valley to maintain a highly visible police presence in the area in an effort to stem this violence. As LAPD spokesman Bob Gill explained of the latest crime suppression strategy, it's an attempt to properly police the city. Community members and police officials themselves questioned the utility of heavy-handed tactics amid the historic decline in violence. Now is the time to start communicating and building a better relationship, 
said Vigi Genses, director of the gang outreach program Save Every Youngster Youth Enterprise Society. If you come in waving sticks, saying, if you get out of hand, we're going to go upside your head, all you're doing is creating a problem. Nobody's going to win. A high-ranking police official who spoke to reporters off the record expressed similar reservations. We're almost issuing a challenge to the gangs by trying to show them how tough the police are, the official said, recognizing that the officers would go in there and want to knock heads together. I'm generally in favor of the cops, but this is not the way to go. Though presented with promising alternatives, including the programs the Crips and Bloods had proposed, authorities could not see a solution outside of more police. If crime was down, they would have to look harder to find it or create it. Although the Blood-slash-Crips proposal did not make an impression on the authorities, its drafters established business ventures of their own in the months after the rebellion, as the LAPD was reinforcing its crime suppression task force, leading organizers partnered with the sneaker company Eurostar, headquartered in South Los Angeles, to develop a line of shoes promoting the truce. The shoes, to be manufactured in Korea, would feature either the red, black, and green colors of the Black Liberation flag or the red and blue of the Bloods and the Crips, respectively, with the label reading Truce on the heels. The various sneaker designs were given names such as The Motivator, The Educator, and The Facilitator. The sneaker enterprise offered Crip and Blood factions hope that the truce would translate to real economic gains— and was initially heralded by city officials as a model job program for former gang members. Rebuild LA director Peter Uberoth praised the shoe line as an example of doing it right. President Bush even sent a letter to the founders applauding their efforts. Eurostar, which reported $57.4 million in sales in 1991, invested $600,000 in the sneaker line. The money was supposed to go toward paying rent and training employees, with the idea that the former gang members would eventually assume control themselves. The company hired Ray Ray, a 24-year-old ex-crip from Watts, and his best friend, 28-year-old Gregory Hightower, Hightower, to oversee the venture. Within two weeks of starting operations, the two men were selling an average of 60 pairs of shoes per day at $25 a pair from a tent on Figueroa in 88th place in South Central. We're not saying that these shoes are going to make you feel like Michael Jordan or Magic Johnson, Haiti said, but you will feel good knowing that the funds are putting food on somebody's table from your own community. The number of jobs created would depend on how well the sneakers sold, and the goal was to bring in enough revenue to pay employees $15 an hour. With Eurostar's backing, as well as support from Maxine Waters and local businessmen, Ray Ray and High Tea opened a space on Florence Avenue they called The Playground, where, in addition to selling shoes, they offered after-school tutoring and organized basketball tournaments. Dawood Sherrills and other key figures in the truce tried to create other opportunities for young men who had demonstrated their business acumen in the drug trade. Two months after the rebellion, Sherrills founded a nonprofit corporation called Hands Across Watts, one of the slogans he and other organizers had used in forging the truce. 
The organization sold T-shirts and set up car washes to provide jobs for former gang members. This is our first step, Cheryl's explained. We are going to get into the mainstream. This here is to open the door. The hope was that corporate donations would support job training programs, childcare services, and recreational activities in South Central. We're going to use them like they use us said Hands Across Watts Vice President and Truce Organizer Tony Bogard of the efforts to court private funding. The difference is we're going to put the money back into our community. The program seemed to be the next logical step after the truce and the decline in violence. We are empowering people who have never been empowered before, Cheryl said. Empowerment, at least in the commercial sphere, would have to wait the market-based approach to recovery that won the praise of the president and the local business community came to little in the end. Eurostar never delivered on its promise to put the sneaker line into mass production, and the business faltered by the summer of 1993. It was in vogue to get involved, Alan Isaacs, a Eurostar employee, explained of the company's fleeting support for the former gang members— but with the cameras gone and the free advertising gone with them, Eurostar's enthusiasm faded. The company was representative in this respect. Hands Across Watts never received the substantial corporate backing it sought, though it did help maintain the peace before dissolving in 1995. Rebuild LA met with a similar fate. Uberoth and other officials showed little interest in partnering with Crips, Bloods, and other community representatives, despite making rhetorical gestures to grassroots empowerment. So it was little surprise that Rebuild LA failed to deliver on the promise of jobs and relief for businesses damaged during the rebellion. It invested less than $400 million in the revitalization effort— falling far short of its lofty goals and the sums in the four to six billion dollar range that would have been required to set South Los Angeles on a meaningful road not just to recovery, but to transformation. Uberoth resigned from Rebuild LA after only one year, following an internal evaluation that found the organization was little more than a convenient excuse for inaction. By 1997, it had disbanded. Despite the broken promises of the business community and politicians, the truce between the Crips and Bloods and Watts not only held, but spread. Violence continued to decline in the communities that embraced the new politics of unity. In the year after the rebellion, homicides throughout Los Angeles County dropped by 10%, the first decrease since 1984. In Jordan Downs, Nickerson Gardens, and Imperial Courts, gang-related deaths declined from 25 in 1987 to 4 in 1997, with the treaty still in effect by the latter date. It would not last much longer. That year, one of the original organizers of the armistice said, I think this 